Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a fantastic author with such hits as the John Dies at the End series, including the brand spanking new If This Book Exists, You're in the Wrong Universe. He also was the editor of Cracked at a very formative time in my life, so I'm very excited. Jason Parjan is here. I also do want to head off any complaints about this being TV at the top and say it's not TV, it's HBO. The line has been shattered, in my opinion, a long time ago. I, I do not, I no longer keep them separately in my mind. Like, I'm going to see in a, in a couple of weeks from now, Glass Onion on Netflix, and I will never think of it as a TV show. I, you know, I saw Knives Out in a the theater. It, I mean, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, also, who cares? You know, <laughs> what is a miniseries if not several small movies conjoined into one long movie? Um, so, as far as I'm concerned, this fits the bill. I'm curious to know if you're generally into disaster movies and slash or what is your history with the terror of nuclear annihilation? No, I, in fact, did not see any reason to watch the Chernobyl miniseries until a whole bunch of people recommended it to me. And even then, all of the reviews were talking about it as if it's like a piece of journalism, you know, like mm. uh, like historical drama and how accurate it is. And that sounded very boring. It wasn't until I watched the first episode that I realized, oh, this is a horror movie. Everything mm -hmm. from the sound design to the editing to the set design to the lighting, everything about the mood, the performances, all is strictly horror. It is perfect, like almost Lovecraftian horror, the way they talk about and deal with the meltdown. And it's this thing that's never been seen before on Earth. And when you look at it, it not just kills you, but it rots your body from the inside. Like, it is supernatural cosmic horror all the way, only it actually happened. <laughs> but the way it's shot, and for people who don't realize why this is suddenly relevant again, the showrunner and creator of the Chernobyl miniseries has been given the Last of Us series that's coming in January. And it, for people who didn't understand the connection, like, why would you want this guy in charge of a zombie show? Go watch Chernobyl. They saw that and it's like he nails the tone perfectly. Yeah. I am not super into disaster stuff myself, although I do find nuclear ones in particular to be uh, pretty terrifying. I saw the China Syndrome recently. That was good. But we also on this show covered the movie Threads. And in the lead up to that discussion, I watched a bunch of the classic nuclear movies like When the Wind Blows, Grave of the Fireflies, all very scary. And then even though it predates the Chernobyl disaster, uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker is, of course, a classic as well. Threads is, the, is not the scariest piece of horror ever made, but it's the one that makes you feel the worst. I will never watch it again. <laughs> I will never watch it it's, again. Like it's 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 horror that's not intended to be entertaining. It's intended to make your life worse in every way. Yeah, it's a, it's a warning. It truly is a warning, and they it, it's a gut punch as well. Yeah. Now this was directed by Johan Rennick, who does a great job, but is created, produced, and written by Craig Mazin. Like you said, I actually just talked to Kevin Bartelt about The Last of Us Part. Two, and so it is, of course, very exciting and topical for this show that his next big project is the adaptation of the first Last of Us game. Um, it is funny also just that, you know, we talk about the comedy writer to horror director pipeline 
and and horror creator pipeline that's been happening with Jordan Peele, of course, and then the director of Barbarian as well. But uh, Craig kind of fits the bill as well. You know, he jumped from Scary Movie 3 and 4 and The Hangover 2 and 3 to like this grim nuclear disaster historical fiction. And, and I absolutely think that he fits the bill of this utilizing sort of the understanding of tension to capitalize and use it for scares instead of laughs. That simple. I think a lot of people, especially maybe if they themselves are not like creative types, they may overestimate the difficulty in hopping genres. A lot of people stick in the same genre their whole career just because for career reasons, it's it's often smart to do that. You have a built-in audience that will follow you, you know, if you do another horror movie. But maybe, for example, you know, a lot of comedians immediately want to do serious dramas and may find it difficult because the money is not there. But there's a reason why so many can do it and have done it. And it's because a lot of them, if you have a general broad understanding of how to, I don't want to use the word manipulate your audience, but how to control the audience's mood, the understanding of, like you said, the rhythms of tension, breaking tension, when to bring in like catharsis, all of those things, it translates across genres pretty easily. And horror and comedy are very similar in that typically, like the movies tend to be very short there's a certain like pacing to them and a lot of things that you know, like the visual language is important. There are punchlines in horror that kind of hit the same way a punchline and a laugh where you've been building, 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 and then here's the thing. Right. Release. And usually the the payoff, it, the strength of the payoff depends entirely on how well you did the buildup. When you see people do it poorly, it's for the same reason as people who say, well, I just want the the release part. I don't want all the boring buildup. You know, I want a horror movie where it's just horror from the opening scene, boom, boom, boom. It's like that. And it's like, well, why wasn't this as scary as Alien? It had all those quiet moments. You know, it's like, well, that's why you had the punchline yeah. <laughs> set up. And comedy is comedy, the same thing. Bad comedies, they tend to just try to hit you over and over again, but without establishing the deeper things that are funny with this character, like, you know, like the British version of The Office, where you had all this pathos and stuff built into it, where it would draw things out like a blade. And then then when the punchline comes, it's just, you almost can't stand it. So no, I, that doesn't surprise me. And in fact, I hope that the market is in a place now where people who are only known for one find it easier to, to transition or get, get funding for a project. Because I think there was probably a time when if one of the people involved in Scary Move before said, hey, I want a big budget theatrical docudrama about... Chernobyl, they would have said absolutely not. <laughs> um, but, but for whatever reason, getting the streaming series, being able to do it in the format that it needed, because it works much better as five hours of streaming than it would have, in my opinion, than it would have as two hours of, of cinema. Giving it the room to breathe and have that build up for each of the storylines and each of the threads that come together is so important to making it feel cohesive and not like one section is like weaker than the others and dragging them down. Yeah. This is a historical fiction, like I said, so it's not 100% accurate. We'll touch on some of these big changes as we go through, but on the official Chernobyl podcast, Craig talked about these at length because of his desire to be transparent, especially since the show itself is about narrative and the cost of lies, which I think is uh, as good a thing as any to discuss on that show. 
Yeah. And in fact, if you're eager to find out what happened at Chernobyl, I wouldn't direct you to this. If you're eager to see an amazingly entertaining piece of horror cinema, yes. But I I would never send you to a fictionalized movie to find out. Like if I wanted to find out about some famous figure, I would never, for example, send you to the biopic of Abraham Lincoln. Right. Spielberg. Like it may be an, an Oscar award winning piece of a, a movie, but I wouldn't send you there. Like I don't watch Braveheart and assume that I now know who William Wallace was. I, it's an amazing piece of action cinema. That's it. And this is not, again, I'm calling this one of my pa- favorite pieces of horror cinema ever. This is not saying anything bad about the production. It's just, in my view, that's not their job. Right. Th- their job is to convey like a story and tell you a story that happens to be based on something real. But I would not show this to a classroom full of kids if I wanted to teach them what Chernobyl was. I would get them a good documentary. Right. They never claimed to be 100% accurate. And uh, and I think that it's for the best because it does make for this incredibly compelling miniseries. So Craig was 15 when Chernobyl happened on April 26, 1986, uh, five years remaining for the Soviet Union. And as fa- uh, as we'll see in the end credits, Premier Gorbachev blames Chernobyl and the expenditure required to react to it for the fall of the Soviet Union. Part of that was that it also forced them to open up to foreign press in a way that they, right. they could because they could not keep the lid on this because the toxic air from the disaster was floating over their neighboring countries. Like it just they could not remain a closed society anymore. And really, once that cap was unsealed, there was kind of no putting it back. And because this is right. the thing that ends totalitarian regimes is once they're not once they're open to like international press and media and they start to see how the rest of the world lives, that kind of thing, they're kind of always on borrowed time. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see the surrounding time, like the time that it took place in is so impactful on the reaction as well. You know, it's just a handful of days before International Workers' Day, the most important holiday for the Soviet Union. There's this pressure to not get embarrassed on the national stage, to keep the parades and stuff that were planned going. But what he said was that over here, what you got was, oh, it's a power plant. It exploded. The Soviets lied. And that was pretty much it. And he wanted to dig beyond that and then additionally demonstrate the Soviet citizenry's sacrifice in order to not only clean it up, but make sure it didn't happen again. Please understand, anybody who does now go watch it, who hasn't seen it, who watches it on our advice, everything in there, this is all information that was uncovered years and years and years later, in some cases very, very recently. None of this was things that you in the United States would have known in 1986, 87, 88, 89. The fate of these workers, who all was involved, the actual steps they took, all of that stuff came out much, much later. There's also something compelling and timely about the idea of trying to solve a mystery in a system that doesn't want that mystery solved. And additionally, the irony that jumped out to him at the beginning was they're running a safety test during the explosion and that disturbing gap between intention and result. These are both things that I think are really interesting about it and do feel very applicable to today's modern world. Oh, thank God this movie did not come out after COVID right. because that would be the only lens because it came out 2019. Like that would be the only lens anybody would ever talk about. They would be grabbing that little clip of them talking about how the masks don't work. Right. And they see that's what he, he's talking about COVID, how the masks don't work. See, when he, they, these people that deny there's an accident, he's talking about the vaccine deniers. Like it would totally have been seen through that lens. And yeah. it wasn't intended to be that. It wasn't even intended, I don't believe, 
to be a specific critique of the Soviet regime or of nuclear power. This is a universal scenario. It's the same scenario you see in the movie Aliens, where the company wants a sample of the aliens brought back. Like, this could have been fictionalized, and it would have fit perfectly into the box of many, many horror movies, disaster movies, Godzilla movies, with, like, the obstinate government officials who are trying to cover their own butts. They don't care about They're willing to take risks rather than lose their, their political reputation. All of that stuff, these are all tropes you've seen in horror. Like, if you didn't know this was based on a real incident, you would see the beats that are like, oh, okay, here's where here's where they're sent down to the alien planet to investigate the eggs. Here's where it goes wrong. Here's where the officials don't help them. It exacerbates the problem. Here's where the common people have to come in and try to salvage this disaster, almost despite their superiors, and on and on and on. Like, it all plays out very neatly according to, you know, according to the tropes. One big early decision that they made, they said this was never really in question, that I want to get your opinion on, was no Russian accents. He said that they didn't want it to turn comical and that it was pretty easy for a Russian accent to turn comical. And so they basically just adjusted the speech to English listeners. Do you wish that they had attempted something or are you kind of just like, whatever, I'm happy to just have it be English accents or, or United Kingdom accents? No, if they're supposed to be speaking a foreign language, I've always felt like the actors should be speaking in their own in their native accent. I mean, it's one of my favorite historical biopics, whatever, is Amadeus. And that was one of the first mm-hmm. ones as a kid that I saw where it's like they weren't even trying to do that German or whatever accents they, they would have been doing. It's like, no, they're just talking like they're talking like Americans are talking like whatever. And within one minute of the movie, I had completely lost sight of the fact that they were doing that, you know, that they weren't right. trying to, to be Mel Gibson doing a Scottish accent in Braveheart or, or whatever to take, take your pick. Yeah. I, I'm inclined to agree with you because I would much rather have them focus on delivering the best possible performance as opposed to being like, oh, God, did that slip? Am I hitting it exactly right? Just avoid that entirely, in my opinion. Yeah, because the nuances of the performances in this are everything. And that's one reason why people, I think people wouldn't think of it as a piece of horror cinema is because like Jared Harris and Stellan Skarsgård, like they're giving very quiet performances for the most part. You will frequently enter a scene where Jared Harris is just at a desk with his head in his hand and he's got like a cigarette burning itself out in an ashtray and you you realize he's just being eaten alive by the stress of this and the powerlessness of it and he's just sitting there and it's very quiet. And you don't associate that with horror. Horror, you tend to think of people screaming, running down dark hallways, <laughs> yelling at each other, you know, and being terrified. But the horror of this was that it was prolonged and that it went on and that it took a long, persistent effort to beat it back and that it did, like the mental and psychological toll it took on everyone was much, much worse than if it had been you having to swim away from a shark one time and escape with your life. Right. This is like having to fight a shark repeatedly over the course of months <laughs> until you slowly you slowly wear it down. And it's I think the, the acting is so good that people don't think of it as a piece of horror cinema because it's like, well, no, horror, it's, it's over the top. You know, it's it's everybody yelling at each other, like hereditary. It's it's people shrieking and <laughs> you know, or stranger things where Winona Ryder is just screaming the whole time. 
Like, no, that's not what this is. If only Boris Sherbina had screamed, I am your mother at the at the core, things might have been different. <laughs> it is a large cast, as you can imagine, for a five-hour uh, expenditure here. Our main trio, as you've already alluded to, are Jared Harris as Valerie Legasov, Stellan Skarsgård as Boris Sherbina, and Emily Watson as Ulana Komyuk. They're all great. I do also want to point out some smaller highlights for me, including Khan O'Neill as Viktor Brukhanyov. And Barry Kyogen as Pavel and Ralph Innocent as General Tarakanov. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, the Russian names are are uh, difficult to to get right every single time. I'm doing my best, but um, Tarakanov, I'll I'll say, is my final attempt on that name. Now, was any of those that the Ukrainian miner guy that they had to bring? No, in? he was great too. Yeah, oh yeah, the, he deserves probably a shout the best piece well. of casting in the entire thing, in my opinion. Yeah, he is really fantastic as well. That's Alex Fens as Andrei Glukov, and he is, you know, he's only he only has a couple of scenes, but he really makes the most of them. They're incredible. Yes. Emily Watson's Ulana doesn't actually exist. She's one of the big changes. She's a composite character which Craig talked about the challenge of historical fiction being that compression of characters. And regarding Lana specifically said, quote, very few women were ever in the kind of overall ruling political body of the Soviet Union. But one area where the Soviets were actually more progressive than we were was in the area of science and medicine, particularly medicine. The Soviet Union had quite a large percentage of female doctors and scientists, and she was meant to show that. So she is representative of sort of the entire scientific community at large and and their pressure to, you know, get the government to open up about these things and make the correct steps to make sure it didn't happen again. Basically, any historical fiction you've ever watched has done this with the cast. You know, Moneyball, you know, Jonah Hill's character, that he it was actually a team of dudes that that did that. But it's just you need to have it be one person. And in real life, there was a large team of scientists from around the area that came in to help out. And they just kind of coalesced that into this one woman who hears about it and kind of like forces her way onto the scene to say, no, you need my expertise. You're doing this wrong, which is how that's how you do it. This is one reason why you can't rely on any piece of like any Hollywood historical dramas to tell you exactly what happened, because the very first thing they have to do is depopulate the cast, get it down to a few key faces. And if anything, like they will take, you know, even if it's, they've got a real person there, they're going to take things that were done in real life by somebody else and attribute it to that person. They're going to give them a bigger role in the story. And it seems like in the world of journalism, that would be criminal. (laughs) But in the world of storytelling, you have to do it. You cannot have a movie with a cast of 75 different people and each one's on screen for 30 seconds. You would just totally lose track right. of what's of what's happening. They, have, they need to be embodied by one person. Now, unfortunately, this is totally off off subject, but this does at times give people a false impression of how things in the real world work, specifically how many people it takes to do a thing. <laughs> so it, you'll see many, you know, like crime dramas based on real cases, and they've got one cop working it the whole time. And then when you go read it up, it's like, well, no, they had half the the department working on it because it was a serial killer, and and it's one guy couldn't have done it. But that's not how right. it works. It's like, no, you cast Brad Pitt, and he's the cop, and that's it. You attribute all of the investigation, all of the discoveries to him. But you can come away from that with a view of the world that's like. 
everything's done by a few handsome heroes. It's like, well, no, <laughs> no. In reality, it takes buildings full of people to to accomplish something like like the Chernobyl salvation and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point about what some people did or didn't do, Legasov was more in the chemistry side of things uh, going into this disaster. So he, the the guy himself, the real guy, wasn't going to have every single answer about nuclear physics. And so Ulana is there to be a challenge to him, to be smarter than him about a lot of the actual specifics. And it works to have this sort of pressure that he feels and we as the audience feel since he is ostensibly our narrative through line. Uh, right. And the other thing that I, I guess that the other big challenge when writing this as a screenplay is taking a lot of the technicalities and the science and boiling it down to a very, very simple, like even the things that sound very technical in the script and in the, the final version, I guarantee you if in real life, you just go to Wikipedia and look at the design of that RMK reactor or whatever it's called. It's like, oh, this is a hundred times more complicated than, and again, they did a beautiful job of distilling it down so that you broadly understood that it was a cascade of failure among multiple parts and practices and human error and and on and on and on. But even their portrayal of that had to be greatly simplified. Right. Production designer Luke Hull worked really hard to get the look of it right because Pripyat and Chernobyl are now 30 years of neglect later, so it doesn't look like it did at the time, obviously. But they went to Lithuania to film, and I thought it was pretty amusing that they were like, well, the nice thing about Soviet-era construction is it all looked pretty similar, and we could just hop over to the next next country. But in terms of a piece of horror cinema, there is no better setting than Soviet-era anything. And oh, yeah, just brutalist architecture. Yes, mm. and just everything about the style and the background and just the mood that it creates. And again, I know... There's tons of stuff they did here with color correction, especially when they're inside the plant, giving stuff a sickly green color. Everything's painted green. It's the color of radiation and cancer and uh, toxicity. Like, it's it's great. And the thing, the, the tragic thing is that I don't doubt that the real plant was just as depressing to be in. <laughs> as their or their horror movie set design, <laughs> but it is everything about like pay close attention when you're watching it to these this sets as horror movie sets and like the flooded hallway with all the pipes and the flickering lights like that is stuff straight out of Alien and I do not doubt again parts of that power plant looked a lot like that it filled with water there were pipes everywhere it was big oppressive giant metal machines that you don't know what they do like everything that we now that you would put in a video game like dead space or any of that was you'll find that in a power plant and in fact i mean those games borrow from that actual like the real stuff existed first it's just it makes such a perfect a perfect setting for creating oppressive dread Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's even the video game series Stalker, which takes place in Chernobyl uh, after a second nuclear disaster takes place there. Yeah, it, it's it's really great. That industrial feeling of decay is so powerful. Like you really it feels tangible almost <laughs> when you're looking at it. Like you feel like you can feel the texture of the gross slimy walls and everything with the water on it. Ugh. It's really great. Really well done. It's impossible to say, obviously, what the budget was, and it definitely wasn't cheap, um, but it's also not like HBO gets ticket sales posted, so it's kind of hard to talk about any financial information, but 
The show did wind up winning 10 of the 19 Emmy nominations it got and plenty of other critical recognition. So safe to say that this is considered a success. Uh, I, I don't think anybody could doubt that. And again, if this had been like, was there any kind of similar acclaim for like the Netflix uh, limited horror series like Midnight Mass? And um, what was the other one from? Uh, oh, Hill House. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if those got the same kind of acclaim, but I think if this had been just a straight up five part piece of horror about like yeah. tweaked enough so it was about a disaster, I don't think it gets that kind of acclaim. I think only attaching right. it to the real event are critics okay with saying, oh, this is an amazing, amazingly effective piece of storytelling. Whereas if it had been a Lovecraftian, you know, demigod they had uncovered at the bottom of the power plant then it's like oh no this is a piece of you know exact same performances exact same set design score sound design everything else and it'd be like ah this is for foolish people to to watch and scare themselves but so it's almost like in my opinion he he snuck in praise for a piece of horror cinema by disguising it as uh because everything i I mentioned the sound design repeatedly here and i'm sure we'll we'll get to that but there's this that droning I, that's, uh, that they had to create somebody, you know, had to dub all that in this, this droning, I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like that infrasound or whatever, that, that, that vibration, that exact frequency that creates dread in the human body. And it's, right. it's anytime they're in the power plant, it's like that all the time. It's just this groaning noise. Yes. I love that. I also love like every time over the credits, there will just be like a few like crackles of the Geiger counters and stuff. And it's just so effectively done to really make it feel omnipresent, to really make you feel the, uh, the, the weight of having this everywhere when it's constantly, you just are every now and then they never let you forget cra- there'll be a crackle in the sound design. It's just so well done to, yeah, absolutely hit those scares perfectly. I, and I agree, I do agree as well that they they snuck in this praise because you're right that there are those those shows got plenty of praise within the horror community but then you see how this had uh, additional crossover appeal in a way that those absolutely did not transcend those genre barriers. But for one thing, if I like taught classes on I don't know sound design or in film school, the use of the Geiger counter in this series would be my first example of using sound design to build tension. And there's two great examples of it. One in episode, I think, two, when they're in the flooded hallway and those divers are going to have to go in there and they've got the guy, get, guy and it's going up and up and up because they're going right to the heart of the beast. And then right. in episode, I think, four, when they're doing the rooftop work and they know they've got one minute of exposure before they die, one minute, and the Geiger counter, and the way that Geiger counter screams when it gets up there close to the actual graphite and you know what that means and the way it has built as they get closer and closer and closer it's almost like measuring how scared you should be it's such a cheat it's such it's such a cheap <laughs> way but the, you know this is one like steven spielberg talked about how having john williams as a, doing his scores was a cheat because he's like well you can th- shoot anything and put it to that score and the audience is going to feel something well, here, this is a great example where, where if you do that scene with and without the Geiger counter, it's two totally different scenes. And in theory, you shouldn't need it, but it's a real device. It's what they used. And here, it's just, 
it's built into the soundtrack of this world, this constant reminder that you are being assaulted by an invisible force that is eating you from the inside out. And it is, right. they've at that point, they've shown you the body horror stuff of what radiation does to the human body, which again is the, the makeup work, superb, all of that, the gore, like it's, you know, the, the exact same makeup and gore work done in a slasher movie. It's like, oh, you've just made trash. But here, right. historical drama, this really happened, important. And it, it is horrible to look at. It, it does its job. Yeah. I mean, at one point, I literally wrote in my notes, I was like, oh, this person looks like Uncle Frank in Hellraiser, <laughs> like at his at his lowest point. <laughs> and when they describe what it does to you, that it's just your cells are just dissolving. Your blood vessels are yeah. dissolving. And it takes yeah, a long exactly. time for you to die, and there's nothing they can do to treat it because not even painkillers can go through your bloodstream because your your blood vessels are not intact. So you just lay there and you very slowly fall apart. Like you've been it's like you've been burned alive, but there's no there's no fixing it. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's get into the actual plot of this. Uh, starts off episode one is entitled one twenty three forty five, which is the time that the clock's read at the time of the explosion. And we start with this monologue into a tape, which is a portion of Valerie Legasov's memoirs. He's asking, what is the cost of lies? It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we'll no longer recognize the truth at all. What can we do then? What else is left but to abandon even the hope of truth and content ourselves with stories? In these stories, it doesn't matter who the heroes are. All we want to know is who is to blame. And I mean, you know, moving beyond COVID, the topicality of this movie in terms of misinformation and finger pointing is so powerful. It is so present from the minute that this starts. I just think that they do such a great job of of making it feel like it's pulling from these real historical elements, but making it not so time locked that you can't also uh, apply it to your own life and put yourself in those shoes. Yeah. And good horror should do that. I mean, horror sometimes has very like basic messages uh, like teenagers shouldn't have sex or they'll be <laughs> stabbed to death by, by a psychopath. Um, but the, the great pieces of horror cinema, like the shining is really about a man's descent into alcoholism and falling apart and just, you know, it's about being trapped with an abuser and someone who is himself not in control of his actions anymore. And it's all spelled out as ghosts and horror and, and all of that. But the reason it really haunts some people's nightmares is because it ties into the something you've been through or you have a friend who's been through it. And the best horror does that. You know, James Cameron talked about aliens as being a Vietnam movie. And the idea of fighting this enemy you can't see and that you don't understand and that you shouldn't be there. Like, you're the invader. And knowing that – but, like, the people who have been sent into it, it's not their fault. You know, they were ordered to go there. And that's part of – like, he's borrowing the horror of the real world and trying to infuse it into his, his piece of, of fictional horror. And here, yeah, it's perfect because everything that happens – that causes more horror to unspool unnecessarily. Everyone who has ever had a job has has had <laughs> has had this meeting. Like I've been in on that meeting where the boss is there, everybody's scared to tell the boss how much money we're losing. And so we show him the charts, but then we quickly put a spin on it. Like, well, you know, that's actually down. That's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. 
is because everybody's scared of being the one to deliver the bad news. And to see it here, knowing you as the viewer, knowing what's at stake, it is maddening. But part of why it's maddening is because, yeah, this is what it would be like. You know, if we discovered one of the, you know, the ancient ones, if we if we discovered Cthulhu under the ocean, this meeting would happen where even <laughs> where there would be like, how do we tell the world about this? Well, we don't want to cause a panic. Well, we could try to do this. Well, maybe he'll go back to sleep. Like it's it's great. That that's why it's great. In real horror, if you are an aspiring horror writing person, this is what you need in your story. It's not all weird and alien. It's weird and alien encountering the mundane and seeing those things clash up against one another. And this meeting these people are having could have been about a bad end-of-month sales report. Right. <laughs> it just happens to be about like they're talking about the Geiger counter readings. And it's like, well, it's 3.6, you know, it could be worse. And then it's it's like you can see how the information was filtered to not make them look as bad. And when you know what's at stake. Oh, it's 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 great. It's a great piece of horror storytelling. It's a tragic piece of, of history, but it's it's both. Absolutely. And I mean, you see it in movies like Shin Godzilla. I mean, that's exactly what it was. That bureaucratic red tape that's holding them up from responding to the monster crisis is exactly that. And and that's what made that movie so effective and such a great sort of return to the the real life criticism of the original Godzilla as well. Yeah, and to the point that this, the reason this opens on what is the cost of lies rather than opening on the plant exploding, which comes very soon, but, but rather the, the first scene is that because it is established that is the monster they're fighting. It's right. not the meltdown. It's not, you know, it's not nuclear power. It is the power of lies and then watch, you know, this concept of, Every lie you tell creates a debt that's going to have to be paid later in blood. And so in at the final, you know, it, it, toward the end of the of the series, when they've things have, you know, they've they've beaten the the meltdown, they've they've fixed everything supposedly. And then there's that where a lot of horror movies would drop a hint that the monster is still alive. Here it's like, did we kill the monster? Like, did we really, did we learn anything from this? Right. You know, and so you kind of see like him getting his reputation trash and like, this is all in the final episode that we'll get to, but it starts this way because it's going to end that way. And that's the actual villain they're taking on. Right. It's two years later to the day after the explosion. And first of all, I do want to also say we get a really great close up of the clock. These close-ups persist through the cinematography, not just of clocks, but in general. A lot of really great full-frame faces, which really let you read the emotion. Just really well done. I like how they handled that a lot. Yes, and there's a lot of – we'll get to it. There's a lot of subtle acting on Jared Harris's part as he under, as he comes to learn what's going on right. that is understated, but also it's, it's amazing. It, it's seeing a man like – crapping his pants in real time, but trying not to show it. But the way he's acting, it's the acting acting of a man trying to act like he's not scared, but you can tell he is. Right. It's it's exquisite. Oh, it does this great paranoia establishment. You know, he does this sneaky spy drop off and then it peaks as he hangs himself in his apartment after one last smoke. First of all, very considerate of him to leave a bunch of food out for this cat. cat. 
Yeah, but knowing it's going to be a few days probably before somebody discovers him, so he's got a few days worth of food down for this, so the cat will be exactly. fine. Now, I I understand the cat would probably just eat all of it all at once and make <laughs> itself sick, but that's not. We don't need to to dive into that. <laughs> yeah, that's also that's the biggest fictional change is that the cat would let itself yeah, that it would um, ration out its food at meal times, but. <laughs> But I also really like this because, to to your point, Jared Harris talks in some behind-the-scenes stuff about how right away you do know the cost. You're wondering what drove him to this, both the secrecy and the death. But on the other hand, since the story isn't really about this death, about specifically Legasov, you don't want to build to it and then have that be the surprise at the end. Have that be a rug pull. Because then it shifts the focus to him specifically as hero and not the reaction to Chernobyl. Yeah, and everything about this, the way it's laid out, I think is in terms of structure is just about is just about perfect. Because again, having this as a framing device, because you're you're announcing, you know, if this was a fictional disaster movie, you would never start out with a framing device that's like two years later after we fixed the disaster. <laughs> Because you're spoiling that they fixed the disaster. Well, it, because this is based on something really happened, we know that the world was not irradiated and that all of Europe was not rendered uninhabitable. So you're safe to do that, but it's it's perfect because, yeah, it creates these questions of like, who is this guy? Why is he having to sneak around? Why is he being watched? Why did he kill himself? What was his role in all of this? And then, yeah. Absolutely. And we go back to Pripyat, Ukrainian SSR, two years and one minute earlier. We see a woman, Ludmilla, emerge from the bathroom with morning sickness. She's wearing a nightgown with a pattern that matches the wallpaper, which makes her look insane. (laughs) But she putters around, and we see Chernobyl explode out the window, silently at first, just shifting lights, until suddenly there's a shockwave and a boom, and it just looks incredible this beam of light shooting straight up because of the ionized air i you know i mean i've we've talked about godzilla already a bunch obviously he is a reaction to the nuclear bomb as well so it's no surprise that there is a lot of similarities but it really does feel like a monster movie at points where you see in the distance this giant event happening and and it you feel so small and insignificant in the face of it and the fact that there was a giant beam of glowing light shooting up from the building, that that is a real thing that happened because, you know, it's radiation ionizing the air or whatever it is. But that's, again, another brilliant choice to take it from the point of view of a common person, you know, living near the plant, one of the like, this is who we care about. And that is just something she saw out of her window and had no way of knowing what this was, because again, the information is not going to come flowing out. They're not going to be honest about it. They're going to, you know, they're going to delay evacuation, everything to the last possible moment. But to start with just this thing being seen out of a window, again, that's that's great because it's focusing on the people who were actually impacted by this. Exactly. And they did talk in the behind the scenes stuff about how remarkably it ejected the detritus straight up, up to a mile high. But it was all vertical, and that's how people managed to survive in the plant. <laughs> but we we do join in the control room with Dyatlov in charge. He assumes that they blew the tank, but someone rushes in to say, actually, no, the core exploded. Dyatlov says, our BMK reactor cores don't explode. This man is in shock. Get him out of here. And 
Craig talked about how this comes from their unwillingness to confront the fact that if that's true, if this is the worst case scenario, then they are already dead. And that mortality drive is part of why they are blinding themselves to it, refusing to see this. I think that that's a really uh, powerful insight. I think that it really does work where you're like, you can put yourself in their shoes and understand how terrifying it would be to have that like, well, I'm dead, but I'm walking around. (laughs) Right. And it would be, I'm trying to think of what the equivalent would be for somebody that does not happening to work in a nuclear power plant right now, because it's the unthinkable happening. And I, I I don't know. It's, it's probably no different than the reason why people continue smoking cigarettes after they've been told, like, you know, no, you're going to die if you keep smoking. You know, it's you're down to half of your lung capacity. It's not just addiction. It's that no one actually thinks they're going to die. No one actually thinks the day is going to come. Uh, you know, I think about the shock after, like, the 9-11 attacks. The idea that this could happen, like, just didn't – had never occurred to people. It just mm-hmm. had never occurred to people that this was a thing. And so here, these people have all been trained. They, in theory, know you know what the reactor is doing. But at the same time, they don't have such a perfect, like, holistic understanding of the science and the chemistry, which is unbelievably technical. Like, they know how to run the machines. They know what the meters mean. But the, the idea that, like, it took an actual scientist or physicist or whatever to understand what caused it to blow up, and it took them a long time to figure it out, and a lot of smart people working together. So it makes perfect sense that, you know, if somebody said your bicycle exploded, you would your response would be, <laughs> you heard something, but I guarantee you my bicycle that I tied to the – to the post out there did not explode like that's like that's not possible you would be you would have to learn something entirely new about how bicycles work and this guy (laughs) seemed as confident because again to spoil what comes later what happened was they had a safety switch that worst comes to worst comes to worst you can hit this and it shuts everything off same as a breaker in your house you turn off there's no power to the whole house like worst comes to worst you can always shut it off and so he was willing to screw around with the reactor and maybe go into the danger zone a little bit because worse comes to worse, you have to shut it down and then it takes a while to bring it back up online. And that's a pain in the ass. A lot of people are without power for a while. But the, the idea that when you hit the shutoff switch, it, that's what caused it to blow. No one in that room, no one in that building, no one in the country, as far as I know, knew that was a thing that could happen. So that guy who says that line is the villain of the piece. Like, there's no question. Right. He's the antagonist. And he's going to be that throughout the movie and, and in real life, arguably was. But his he's also, in the style of good writing, good horror writing, any kind of good fiction, it's totally understandable his position. Because one, that's the end of his life if this thing has really blown. Like, his career, either even if he survives... And he did, but even if he survives, like his career's over, he's going to go to Siberia, he's going to go to a prison camp. So not wanting to admit that happened until you absolutely have to, I think that's a totally understandable and human response, which again, part of why it's scary. Yeah, absolutely. They call the fire brigade. I love this uh, emergency call. It's so intense. It's the actual audio per Craig. It's nicely stylized with just the text on screen over audio. 
Um, there's not like it's just like the uh, digital text appearing. It's it's really great. And they say they're calling everyone in, including Vasily, a fireman, and Ludmilla's husband. And so we see how this is immediately starting to affect the common people, uh, despite their unknowing uh, what's happening. You know, they think it's just a, a roof fire. Which again, in the it's implied that in the Soviet Union. Equipment failing in a way that caused it to catch on fire—not an unusual thing to see. Uh, so it, it it seemed very routine. If if nothing else, it was something to kind of come out and watch because fires are fun to, to look at. And people's power was still on, you know. So it's like people were coming out, like, "Oh, there's fire power plant. Let's go. Let's go watch it. Let's go watch it happen." Like they had no, they had no idea. It's now one twenty-five in the morning. They're bringing out the dosimeters, which max out immediately. The guy using it is starting to have his face burn from the radiation. Other people are puking blood, but they can't get out through the debris. It's nasty immediately. Yeah. And a great piece of opening horror where your first encounter with the monster. You don't see the monster. You don't understand the nature of the monster, but you start to see its effects. You know, if this was a werewolf movie, here's where they encounter the, the half-eaten body in the woods. And they say, what, did a dog do that? Like, no dog did that. <laughs> Look at the footprints. These are man. These are male human footprints. You know, you think a man ate ate her whole torso? What could it be? It's like some sort of a wolf man. Well, same thing here. It's like you see (laughs) victims and what the victims are suffering seems supernatural. It seems like the result of a curse. Like what sickness acts that quickly? What, What poison does that to the body? It's like burning their faces and they're sick and and people who aren't encountering anything physically are getting sick and burned by this invisible force. Like it is supernatural sci-fi horror all the way that how it unrolls, uh, like unspools and you get somewhere and you're going to get a glimpse of the core, but I don't know exactly how far in it comes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see it when the firemen arrive and the one guy, Misha, is just like, huh, what do you think this rock is? And holds a chunk of graphite directly up to his face. And even beyond the immediate effects of the radiation burning right in through his glove and into his hand, you're like, as someone knowing what radiation does to people, you like, you're like, oh, he just signed up for like the worst possible death. It's the the immediate tragedy and the upcoming tragedy of it are equally powerful. Yeah. And it, there's like a minute later, they come back to him and he pulls his glove off and is just eaten through his hand. And that's, yeah. that's a great, again, a great little dropping little, little snapshots of, of the effects and of, of what, of what this monster does. And this is the case inside as well. Akimov said is the refrain as the reactor employees see no evil, but the irradiated metal starts to eat through where one is holding the door, which is really shocking and nasty as blood like blossoms on their white uniforms. I mean, again, it might be historically accurate that they have these really like white uh, frocks on, but boy, does it look good when like the effects of the blood popping up and blossoming under it start to take effect. And you also see people behaving heroically, rescuing each other, hauling out victims, charging into the danger. It's yeah. And, and again, if you if, anybody who again goes and watches this, you've never never seen it before. If you want to rewatch it based on hearing us talk about it, watch that scene and again pay attention to just the sound design, all the sounds they mm-hmm. added in the score, what the score is doing, how subtle it is, and it's the way it builds dread. 
And you definitely see people acting heroically, but on the other hand, you see Dyatlov acting quite villainously as he has this calm menace. He's turning aside all the worry. He threatens Akimov to call in the day shift because they got to throw bodies at it, basically, he says. And part of this fear that takes place across the entirety of this movie is that people are so exploited and terrified of not being able to keep their jobs because they're like just living check to check that there is a blindness imposed on them both by middle management whose entire job is to babysit them and make sure that everything stays exactly the same but also themselves like you said out of fear of the messenger getting killed and so it's coming from both sides to as you say, make a very human reaction out of them just being like, all right, I am just going to do whatever they tell me to do and not really think about it. Generally, broadly, if you've ever worked for a really bad company and worked for a really good company, there's a core principle that separates them. A really bad company, when something goes wrong, management immediately wants to know who was at fault. And who can we fire? Who can we yell out? Who can we scream at in, in the meeting? Who can we pin this on? And then a good company is like, okay, we have a problem with the system. If the problem is that this person doing this job doesn't know how to do the job, then fine, we'll get someone else in there. But that is, it is a machine we're trying to fix. We're not trying to affix blame. We're trying to understand where did the machine break down? When you have the bad company or bad organization, the who is to blame atmosphere what happens is it creates that paranoia where as soon as something goes wrong, the immediate response is to make sure you're not the one blamed, even if it means covering up the disaster for the next shift to discover, because whoever discovered it will be the ones who get nailed with it. So you are literally motivated to not deliver information to upper management. But this happens right now. There are companies, there are businesses, there are restaurants, bars, whatever, small businesses operating exactly like this, where the guy in charge, I think Elon Musk seems to run his companies this way, not to get off on Elon Musk, but that this thing about, I want to root out the bad people. I want to root out the people who are not loyal. Well, well what does that mm -hmm. do? It creates, like, there's no flow of information, of correct information, because everybody's filtering it to preserve their own position. And sure. that's what happens here. Again, anybody, there's nothing alien about the way these people are behaving. If you've ever worked for a bad company, and some people, if you've worked in a bad government, you've seen this. You, you've seen this, like, doing the something, the actions are crazy, but the, the motivation behind it, it was built, it was trained into this guy that this is how you survive in the system. Yeah. I also really like that we get one quick moment of levity where it cuts over to the infirmary and the doctor is like, ah, nothing but babies today. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And a nurse asks about the iodine pills when she sees the light, but a doctor scoffs at it and you can kind of see how they're underprepared for what's about to happen. Just past two, plant director Burkanyov and chief engineer Fomin debrief Dyatlov in a bunker outside the plant. And they're all already pointing fingers. Uh, we ran the safety test as approved by Fomin. Unit, uh, unit shift chief Akimov and engineer Toptonov encountered technical difficulties, leading to an accumulation of hydrogen in the control system tank, which regrettably ignited, damaging the plant and setting the roof on fire. All of this like corporate speak of like technical difficulties to describe the explosion of a core 
the corporate nature of it is comical if it wasn't so scary here. Yeah, especially since they're within presumably a few minutes of where the actual thing has occurred. Like they could just go look at it, but they mm. don't. Like they could see pieces of the core on the ground <laughs> around the plant if they went out there. Uh, you know, they would die if they went out there. But that's that's part of why it is almost darkly comical because like, well, hydrogen tank exploded, you know, they're, they're known to explode. This is, you know, we'll have to replace it. We'll have to fix the roof, blah, blah, blah. But, but really downplaying like, you know, a, a week later, we'll have all this, this fixed or, or whatever. When they're denying what's right outside their door, it's right, right there. Like they could just go look and see it. And it takes a long time till the next day, I think the next afternoon before they, they finally get it, some, they send somebody in a helicopter to go look and say, oh yeah, it's the whole center of the thing is blown <laughs> wide open. But that's, it is, it's not played as comedy, but it is definitely darkly comical because again, they're talking about something that is, they could just go look at if they wanted to. Well, a flashlight, right. they could just go see it and see that what he's saying is nonsense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Famine is interesting. In the podcast, Craig talked about how he was the head scientist for Chernobyl with deputies like Dyatlov, but that he basically got his degree through a mail order and wasn't really trained as a physicist. So he was out of his depth throughout this entire thing. And I think you can see that in the characterization of like in the movie, because he just really comes across as like floundering and and craven like he, he it's a great performance uh, of someone who is not likable right but they they try to and they'll follow up with this in later episodes that, that part of the flaw in the system was that people got elevated to their positions through political favors and knowing the right people it definitely was not a meritocracy it's you know right they approve six-hour shifts based on the incorrect data point of 3.6 Röntgen being the, the radiation out there. And they say, oh, do check regularly with the dosimeter, and uh, we might as well use the good one from the safe. I will say, I do like that they take some time to show the beauty of the fire and the strange colored light. You know, destruction is a creative impulse as well, after all. But terrifyingly, you see these people watching, and they take the time to get those close-ups of the fallout floating around the people watching, even from miles away, getting caught in their hair, their vodka, getting breathed in, kids romping around in it. It is so scary to watch them not understand what's happening. And it is... The final shot in this episode is another one of those where it is pure horror movie, you know, whatever, whatever you call that, the dramatic irony where the audience knows something that the people on the scene do not... And here, because people think, well, it's just ash from the fire blowing over whatever, you know, it seems fairly harmless. It's like snow. It's like, no, that is every particle of that is radioactive. And the reason, because this is for people don't realize, like radiation itself, being exposed to radiation doesn't make you radioactive. What makes you radioactive is material that's radioactive sticking to you. Like it can be right. cleaned off, but, but like when they say, well, I was near the thing and now I'm radioactive, it's because you've got debris and stuff and dirt and particles and ash and smoke, whatever in, on your skin, in your hair, on your clothes. And, and it continues to expose you to the, the radiation. So when these people are out there with this, these little flakes of ash falling on them, that is just ashes of death. Yeah. People are collapsing in the plant's interior, but back with Dyatlov and co, uh, Burkhanyov is briefing the Pripyat committee of leaders about how this went up the chain of command. And Gorbachev is insisting that due to, quote, state secrets element of the Soviet nuclear industry, 
that this incident needs to have no adverse consequences. <laughs> and that between 2,000 and 4,000 soldiers are coming to keep things copacetic. But also, things are under control. Don't worry about it. Yeah, and uh, Gorbachev here is portrayed as a fairly nuanced character because he, as in real life, eventually succumbed to reality about not being able to run the country the way here. There, there's almost tiny little hints of him realizing, not in this scene, but that the status quo was not going to serve us. And so in this right. scene, he still thinks, okay, you bring in the military, you shut down the flow of information, don't let the Americans know that we screwed up one of our power plants, you know, because their, their satellites will probably be able to see it or whatever. Like, just keep it quiet, fix the damage, move on. And again, the, the story they gave him was little damage, roof caught on fire, we're putting it out, you know. Every, exactly. This is an yeah. example of Soviet efficiency and how we are we have almost already solved the problem. <laughs> One of the council members says, uh, are you kidding me? There are people outside here vomiting and burning. You're clearly lying about how much radiation is there. But they're placated by an older gentleman who says, trust the state. We're here to protect the people. And in this case, that means believing that it's not that bad and preventing a panic. Seal the city. Cut the phone lines. Keep the sheep docile and from undermining the fruits of their labor. We'll all be rewarded for what we do here tonight. This is our moment to shine. And they all clap. And Craig talked about how this guy represented the true believers, the old guard who were there for the revolution and genuinely believed that this was the best course of action to tell nobody. They knew Lenin. This was fresh. It wasn't some religious cult separated from their leader by thousands of years. They were alive and believed in uh, uh, the power of the state to, to know best. We could do an entire other series of episodes about how the belief that controlling the flow of information is still the key to keeping the peace, that that has never gone away. It's just that people want to be much more subtle about it, but that's that's a whole separate thing because that is a belief that I think is a superstition, the idea that if we don't if we expose people to the wrong facts they will go out and do something crazy so we just need to make sure that we're not exposing them to the wrong information it's like i don't know <laughs> it's cuz the automatically that comes with a sense of superiority like well we here sure. in the room know what's going on but they can't be trusted like why are they sheep what 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 separates right. us from them like why can't those firefighters know the same thing we know why can't those people working at the scene be trusted to know but that was the that was the culture that was the culture at the time. Absolutely. But it's it's not a distinctly Soviet thing. That's that there are similar <laughs> meetings held in every country in the world, including <laughs> the United States, about well, people what would people do if they knew this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh Comrade Sitnikov arrives after the council disperses and tells the three main guys who are there, we've tried the good dosimeter, which goes to a thousand, and it burned out immediately. We tried another from the military firemen, which goes to two hundred, and it maxed out several times. And also, I saw graphite in the rubble, which sends Dyatlov off the deep end. And they refuse to believe Sitnikov that the core has exploded. So uh, Dyatlov says, God damn it, I'll look into the core with my own eyes. Puke, collapse. Again, darkly comic in that, like, the ironic timing of him being like, fine, I'll go look. And then the radiation starts to affect him. It's it's intense. It's rough. And then the other people hauling him off to the hospital saying, well, he's been under a bunch of stress. He probably got sick from drinking too much coffee or whatever they said. It, it's like right. they, they immediately don't they don't connect that. Oh, no, everybody there is vomiting from radiation. Right. 
I also laugh because they want to send Sitnikov to the roof to report back what he sees, which he already thinks it exploded. He could just like walk away, count to 30, come back and be like, yeah, it's crazy, guys. It totally exploded over there. Uh, right. Because again, looking at this is a death sentence. You're talking about putting your head yeah. right over the, but yeah. Right. He has to be forced by a soldier to walk out to the edge of the wreckage. He does stare into the void of nuclear annihilation. He turns around. He's immediately extremely red in the face and not because he was wrong, but because he is now irradiated. Yeah. And now I do think, I think I do remember them saying that that was a little bit of Hollywood that you don't, your skin doesn't turn red instantly. It takes a a little Mm -hmm. while, but to convey that, and here's where you get the first early shot of the monster, where he looks down to the core and you see this, it's not on fire, it's this pulsing orb of energy that no one has looked at with human eyes, like a, a, a reactor core that's in full runaway meltdown mode, where it's burning nuclear fuel. Like, again, you can't, as they're going to describe later, you can't put that fire out. Like, you dump water on right. it, it just vaporizes. Like, this is something else. You have, like, a little sun down there. So you get like one second of it, the same as like an alien. You get the first time in, in that, that shaft, you get like one second of the fully grown alien and you cut away, you know, that early mm-hmm. shot of the monster. And it's very, again, Lovecraftian. Everything about the way they talk about it, the way they've built it up, the, the sheer denial of its existence because it's too scary to comprehend. And that this person, when he looks into its face, turns away and he's now doomed he's like a shambling zombie like that's all very cosmic horror sci-fi horror stuff right there because you you mm-hmm. stared at a supernatural deadly force that it kills you with invisible energy and eats you alive from the inside out drives you insane like it is pure the way it's shot everything is pure lovecraft it's the best lovecraft adaptation that has nothing to do with with lovecraft <laughs> all of the themes are are there Absolutely. I also we talked about how great this is paced out and how well uh, how how well it's put together. But I love how effortlessly it, it comes together in that Dyatlov is taken to the hospital and we see the arrival of the workers beginning as well. And so you get this great sort of hanging blade of Damascus over you as you see uh, the the hospital. You know it's going to be overrun and. The Kremlin calls in Valery Legasov, first deputy director of the Kurchatov Institute of Atomic Energy, a two years younger version of the hanged man from the beginning, now appointed to answer questions about the RBMK reactor and nothing else. Do not offer policy advice, they warn him. Again, he does not understand what's happening. He, he, he gets called in to just be in on this, this meeting. That is it. He, he, it's not clear to him. Like he he once they get from the tiniest little hints that there's been a disaster, he obviously wants to know everything. But it's like, no, that's not you're only here to explain how the reactor works. You're that's that's it. Right. And the episode concludes with the men working the valve starting to burn and collapse. Then the cloud of ash looming over the area. It's about to destroy forests, communities, all continuing about their day except for one bird, which falls to the ground, seizing and dying. The proverbial canary in the coal mine, if the coal was radioactive and the mine was everywhere. Yeah, and specifically, you see a group of children walk by on their way to school, because it's the next morning, right? 
and then right. they they walk out of the frame and you see this bird plop down out of the sky and twitch itself to death on the ground and Oof. cut to credits dead silence it's like oh okay uh, <laughs> the, the invisible death is here and these people don't know because no one has told them and no one is going to tell them and they are just exactly. going to school they're going to work and all they think is that there was a minor fire at the nearby power plant and it's over which leads us into episode two. Please remain calm. <laughs> we fade in on some absolutely gorgeous artwork. The Blacksmiths of Modernity, a mural at the now formerly named Belarusian Institute for Nuclear Energy in Minsk. 400 kilometers or about 250 miles away from Chernobyl. As you say, it is the next day. It's 8.30 a.m. on April 26th, seven hours after the explosion. And this poem is recited over the radio. It is in Russian, which I like uh, as a choice. But the translation was played on the podcast, and it's good. It's Konstantin Simonov's To Alexei Surkov, which was written right after the Nazi invasion of Russia, and it's about your duty to give your life to defend the country as he walks past the graveyards, which is a similar sacrifice to the people who essentially went to war with Chernobyl. And I didn't, I didn't know that, but you're, you're encouraging me. It's of the two of us or the listeners. I, he's listed a podcast. I have not. I now want to go listen to. So I actually didn't know that the creators had done a, a tie-in podcast to the show. But that sounds like there's all sorts of great information there. Don't don't yeah, listen to definitely. it instead of this. Listen to listen <laughs> to this first. Finish this, then you get all the the little extra stuff that didn't make the cut. <laughs> a skeleton crew of researchers who are in on a Saturday, including Ulana Kolmyuk are nervous about the increasing radiation on their meters, and after testing the ash, they find iodine-131. It's not military, it's uranium decay from the reactor fuel. And this is just a great startup. You know, I like seeing a couple of scientists be like, this is weird, like, what do you think is going on? That it's not just her, that she is this incredibly brilliant person. Like, it, it's she has the drive to do it, but... Potentially, it could have been anybody who who made this discovery as well. Yeah, when she, and again, this is the character that was fictionalized for the story, but when she tells her assistant or the other guy, and he says, is it the Americans? Was he asking if a nuclear war, if they had sent a, a nuclear missile and destroyed a nearby city? Was that what he was implying when he said, is it the Americans? That was my understanding. Okay. There was also a thought of, in my head where he was asking about if it was sabotage and they had blown oh, up okay. the reactor. Either way, I think works and uh, would speak to realistic concerns that he would have. So, well, yeah, if you woke up in in the eighties in America and suddenly you looked and you had a Geiger counter going off, your first thought would be, "Oh, there's been a nuclear strike. Like a, a nearby city has been destroyed. It's just we're too we're far enough away that we're getting whiffs of the radiation." But and again, in, in a time and place where you wouldn't necessarily hear about it on the news, I could see him saying like, oh, yeah, the way we would find out is we would notice we were radioactive the next day. Right. Back at the hospital, they're completely overwhelmed already. They don't even have enough IVs for all the children being brought in. Even just bringing the contaminated clothes to the basement is burning the medical staff. This is, of course, part of the terror is the overwhelming and burnout of the people trying to help and the lack of support that they have. Well, they've none of them have ever seen this before. Right. This is their first, and again, they've not been told what has happened. They, they don't understand it, and you have that one nurse who starts to put the clues together and like gets the clothes off everybody because again, the clothes are contaminated not with radiation, but with ash, with dirt, anything, all the the stuff that's carrying the radiation is stuck to the clothes, and they're 
you see a pile of boots and coats and stuff they've thrown in this basement. Well, that's recreating a famous photo from the site. That stuff's still there right now. Right. That pile of clothes because right. you can't you can't go touch it. Still highly radioactive. Absolutely. Ludmilla is there. She tries to see her husband. She breaks through the police line while they're distracted with some others, but she gets told that he's going to Moscow for special treatment because he was so close. Meanwhile, Professor Legasov is reporting to the Kremlin. He's stunned to read the report from Deputy Chairman Sherbina, played by Stellan Skarsgård. Absolutely incredible performance. He is just so gravelly and and in, in powerful feeling in this, despite being the one who like doesn't have the know-how. Um, he is the political player of the of the group, and uh, and he kills it. He's great in it. Yeah, and the scene where Jared, the, my favorite scene in the entire series is when Jared Harris is he's waiting to go into the meeting with everybody, including his president, basically, and they hand him the little report that is the sanest, the sanitized report that's kind of like downplaying everything, but he knows what he's looking at. And so he just starts flipping through it because he's bored, like he's been dragged there. He's got to go in this meeting, da da da, and he's reading it, and you see his demeanor change, mm-hmm. and he starts like, and you realize it is beautifully acted. There's zero dialogue, and the sound drops out and is replaced with this ringing sound, which is like his ears are like like he's about to faint. Because right. he realizes, oh, these radiation values they're giving, that's the max that their devices could show. They're mm-hmm. experiencing more radiation than what their gear can even tell them is there. And they're calling that the radiation level. It's like, no, that's where the needle breaks off the machine. That's not <laughs> the radiation level. That's where it pegs. And living in that society, knowing how they work, he realizes, like, he sees it. Like, they're, he's like, they're covering up. They've got a reactor, a core breach, and it's not a momentous occasion. It's not an action scene. And in most movies, Hollywood productions, this would be an action scene of some kind. He'd be dangling off a helicopter and he would see the core. But here he's just handed a report. He's sitting outside a meeting. He's nervous about what he's going to say. This is one of those meetings where it can only go badly. This cannot help him in any way. He can only make Mm -hmm. somebody mad and then ruin his career. So he's like dreading the meeting. And you just see him flipping through that and realizing, oh, the world might be about to end, and none of these people in there know it. And so they call him in, and he comes in, and this, the shot is like wobbly, and the sound is drawn. It's like this, that ringing of the ear sound, and he's entering the room, and you can feel it, that he has been gut-punched with this news that has been dropped on him, and now he's going in this room where these people are going to try, immediately try to, like, smooth over it. Yeah. Sherbina's like, everything is fine, it's under control, but, like, Asov has to speak up because he says the smooth black rock that burns someone that's described has to be graphite, which means the reactor core has, has to be wide open right now. Sherbina tries to quash this, but Legasov says it's not alarmist if it's a fact, which is a relatable feeling. <laughs> Yeah, and he is alone in that room, but it is ultimately they they don't make Gorbachev into a hero in this, but it is Gorbachev who says, "Take him out there and look. Just take him out there and look at it," which is why right. anybody could ha- anybody could have done at this point. Yeah, you, the skeptical, the skeptic, and the alarmist go out there together, 
he knows what he's looking at. He's the expert. You're not both, you know, you're in charge, but he's the expert in the reactor technology. Go look at it. Let him tell you what's happened. Yeah. Which is the sensible thing to do. Like it's, yeah. But it, I think that only could have come from the top. Exactly. And they're a great odd couple. I love Sherbina's refusal to like to be dependent on someone else. We see him demanding to know how the reactor works, threatening to throw Legasov out of the plane if, if the pilot doesn't take them directly over the building and- He's trying to yell, oh, you'll be dead within a week if we fly over there. It's this great conflict personality-wise, this great interpersonal conflict between the two of them because of the pressure of the external situation as well. And a great piece of writing. Again, some people struggle with this when writing a plot. This is why you see so many movies where they've got a character who is coming at it from the outside and the situation must be explained to them because it gives you an opportunity to explain it to the audience. So this is, regardless of that guy's level of knowledge in real life, you absolutely needed this for the script that you have the nerdy expert and same thing in Jaws. You have the the shark expert and the mayor and that's, that's their relationship because it's like, he's explaining how sharks work to the guy, but it's really for the audience. So, this guy says, tell me how an RNK reactor works. And he walks him through it. And he walks through why it's dangerous, why radiation is dangerous. It's like a bullet that fires through your cells and punctures them and destroys your DNA and on and on and on. And he's telling them that in this helicopter. And then a scene like that could be very boring and dry, but they are seeing it while heading toward the reactor, toward the monster, toward this glowing blue beam firing up into the sky like out of a freaking Marvel movie where they had used to have the beam shooting up around the final action scene. And the phrasing he uses was, he tells that pilot, he's like, don't take us directly over. And Stellan Skarsgård is demanding that he he be taken directly over. And he tells the pilot, he's like, finally, Skarsgård tells, I'm using the actor's names because I can't pronounce the the character names. Tells the pilot, take us directly over or else I'm going to have you shot. And the other guy, Jared Harris, says, if you take us directly over that, by this time tomorrow morning, you'll be begging for that bullet. Right. Powerful. And that's, again, describing. You don't have to see what the monster does. He is describing because he knows the monster. Here's your monster expert. And he's telling you, you cannot imagine. And we're in a helicopter hundreds of feet above it. I'm telling you, if you just fly over it, we're all we're all not just going to die, but we're going to die the worst death you can imagine. Yeah. And this is a great reflection of uh, what Ulana is up to rushing into the Communist Party headquarters in Minsk to to warn about Chernobyl. And there they're, they dismiss her as fear mongering. He says, I prefer my opinion to yours, despite her expertise. It's a great moment where she's like, I'm a nuclear physicist and you were a shoe salesman. But, you know, he has the power that scene is there to for what i alluded to earlier that he's not there because of of his expertise like in some form like her point that you used to manage a shoe factory and now you're here like yeah he's sitting there drinking vodka at his desk and it's like at some point he curried favor with some higher up and got appointed like that's the thing with all of the not to get into it but with all the flaws of capitalism the issue with this type of government structure is that everything goes to whoever the party officials like the most or owe favorites to or it's their cousin right. or whatever they can dole out these positions but it's not it's not a meritocracy so that's what they're trying to point out with the scene is like that's kind of endemic to the system that the people that are in these positions of power didn't necessarily earn their way there right. some of them did 
But in many cases, there are people, because you're going to see this with our protagonist, is that he was the hero of the whole story, but had his entire career destroyed, his reputation wiped out because he didn't play along with what how the party wanted him to roll out the information. So it's like it's not a race of the most qualified to the top. It's whoever plays ball the best, and those tend to be bootlickers or whatever. Right. They do arrive at the plant. The plant director, Brukhanov, uh, welcomes Sherbina with a list of potentially accountable workers. They're ready to point that finger and accuse Legasov of spreading misinformation. But I really love this moment where the distrustful Sherbina questions them about the graphite on the roof, which Legasov had warned him about. He uses this newly gained information to create this appearance of of knowledge and of of true understanding which throws them off balance and it shifts that power dynamic back in his direction i think it's a really really great scene and it's a great bit of nuance because he in the start of his appearance appears to be like he's going to be the antagonist of the he's the denier who's going to be the obstinate a bad guy of the story because again lots of movies have this and they're usually a very frustrating character because it's the one guy who like well i don't believe in vampires <laughs> it's like everyone has been eaten by a vampire <laughs> it's too late to it's like no i i refuse to to go out there and grab the cross i refuse and so you think he's going to be that but when he has enough information and the guy is like well no what you're seeing is just concrete he's like no no no, no. i know what concrete looks like i've been working with it my all my life that was not concrete. Yeah. That was something else. It looked a lot like graphite. And if it's graphite, that means the reactors exploded. So he, when he has enough information, is ad- flat out admits in front of this underling that he actually was wrong before. He changes his position. And that is like a pivotal, mo- pivotal moment of heroism that is barely played as such. Yeah. Because he puts his entire career, everything on the line in that moment, and it's just a conversation, but it's just a matter of him willing to admit that his information was incomplete or incorrect, and that the hard truth, the awful truth, which includes the fact that he he's standing in a radioactive site right now and is now himself doomed, as he's going to find out, like... He accepts the terrible truth that all of these lesser people would not accept. And and that's that's everything. But it's played as such a simple moment. It's just a conversation. Yes, absolutely. And they agree to use the high-range dosimeter to determine who's right. And we get this noble general here who says if the protection might not work, he'll check himself instead of sending someone else into the radiation. Gotta have that guy. That's cool because they're not monsters. Right. Like he's like there are genuine heroes that you know, and this guy's like, no, I'm not going to send because they're they're telling him like, yeah, whoever you send in, they're probably not going to come back. He's like, then I'm not going to send anybody. I'll do it myself. Exactly. That's that's great. And to your point about how it's filmed like a horror movie, I mean, when he gets back in his radiation suit, it's filmed like he's an alien invader. Like it, it, it's so great. It made it reminded me of in Back to the Future when Marty scares his dad by like pretending to be an alien and dressing up in this radiation suit that he got from Doc and yeah played through the right lens it is a terrifying looking outfit and that surrounded by the the terror of this invisible killer it's just a great striking horror sequence uh, yeah and you're going to get a lot of that a lot of the equipment looks alien and weird cuz it is soviet era like again a lot of those tropes have made it into our science fiction but 
it's you're going to get a lot of that because a lot of the stuff they have to use the machines the way they have to like shield them it's all very strange and frightening and kind of an uncanny valley effect where it's like the stuff doesn't look quite right and some of it is just again what a great what great sets and costumes and everything the old soviet union was for a horror scenario as as you point out many video games have figured this out before me exactly and he reports that it's 15,000 Ronkin, not three, which means that the fire that they're watching is giving off nearly double the radiation of the bomb in Hiroshima every hour, 40 bombs worth so far. Yeah. The two plant leaders are taken away to the party, despite cries of, it was Dyatlov! <laughs> but again, it, they, again, though, it demonstrates exactly what they were afraid of. Like, that's why they didn't tell you. Because, yeah, they were sent off to a hard labor camp or, or whatever. But it's like, well, yeah, you're doing exactly what is the reason they wouldn't tell you the truth. Right. So it is funny that it's like, all right, well, you're you're under arrest for, for, for what, lying? It's like, well, yeah, but if we had told the truth, we also would have been under arrest. Like, that's, yeah. Right. But anyway. They, discern, they determine the only path forward is boron and sand. Uh, 5,000 tons of it, but Sherbina can't slash won't evacuate people because that's that's what the higher-ups said. They just cannot let that get out. And there's this great moment at the hotel bar where we see Legasov lie to the other bar patrons. We don't know at this moment that they are spies or reporting to the Kremlin, which or the KGB, which we'll find out later is the case. But you see him toe the party line. And you wonder if he thinks they're testing him or if he thinks it's already too late for them or just doesn't want to cause fear. It's a complicated situation. And Jared Harris talks about how prior to this, the character of Legasov is an innocent plucked from his life, but that the minute he lies, he has stepped into the story and bears some responsibility for the outcome. Yes, because again, he kills himself partly over, I think, the the guilt he feels over kind of being a part of the machinery that, but, uh, you know, again, you couldn't, and if you put yourself in his shoes, if he says something and starts a panic, which it would have in that hotel, it gets traced back to him. They sent him off to a labor camp. He now is not there to help anymore. And he's the only one who knows the only person they found so far who knows how to contain this. Because again, what they have to do to stop this is absurd. They have to dump 5,000 tons of sand and boron. They have to find somewhere. They're going to have to dump it by helicopter on top of this raging, this magical, dark magic energy that kills everyone who looks at it. And they're going to have to do this just by dropping it on by helicopter and create a layer of molten lava on top of it to keep it contained. Like, that's nuts. Mm -hmm. So again, what does it accomplish if he panics the people in that hotel, he goes to jail, they put some party lackey in charge of the cleanup who doesn't know how to handle it, they dump water on it, cause it to explode, whatever. Like, yeah, in that position, you would lie. And it is a wonderful little quiet moment mm -hmm. explaining how every cog in the machine is themselves not necessarily guilty. You do it because you have to do it. So how much can you blame any of these people? Because they would say the same thing. Well, like, I need to be here doing my job. This is my job. This is what I'm good at. What do I gain breaking rocks in Siberia? Because I made so much. So yeah, I'm going to say the right thing. Yeah, I don't know if this is being bugged. I don't know if this person's KGB. So yeah, I'm going to 
only voice support of the party. No, I'm not a revolutionary. I've got a child at home. I've got, you know, a family. And so that's that's why that scene is there. Again, if you are making a horror thriller, you would leave that quiet little moment at the hotel out. But it is a perfect little portrait because it's like this is a country of a couple hundred million people making that choice every day. Not because they're evil, not because they're monsters, but because ultimately you're all kind of just a part of a system. Yeah. And there's a great escalation from the bird that we saw at the end of the first episode to this dead deer in the woods, which is a really powerful shot. The wind rustling in the trees. I truly, you know, you watch this and you're like, how do you fight the wind? Yes. And and again, a, a powerful message that came from M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, I don't feel like conveyed quite as effectively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's the case where uh, that's where you don't have Mark Wahlberg in the lead role. So I think that yes. <laughs> you have an actor that's able to portray it with more nuance than like, what? No, the wind, <laughs> the wind is killing us. <laughs> the boron on sand dropping efforts have begun. The radiation immediately takes out the first pilot, though, who gets too close. And it's shocking how quickly it gets them. But our gang watches in horror because there is no other way. They have to just keep sending people in. Ulana is, she's heading for Chernobyl herself after she speaks in code to someone in Moscow. Everybody's on the move. All roads lead to Rome here, uh, or to Chernobyl in this instance. And we get this moment at the hotel where Legasov tells Sherbina that they're dead in five years because of where they're saying. And he just has to take it in for a second which is compounded by the phone call coming in saying that a plant in Sweden has detected the radiation and identified it as coming from Russia. Uh, Americans are taking satellite photos. The whole world knows the whole world except the people directly in its shadow. It's such a powerful moment, both for Stellan's, uh, Stellar's performance, Stellan's performance, it's Stellar, <laughs> and, and also just for understanding the sheer scope and impact of what's happening as well. And the reason they're not evacuating, because this has been the key tension, because obviously Jared Harris knows that the air is deadly. He wants to get everyone in the town, the surrounding towns out of there, but an evacuation cannot be covered up. That's the issue. The moment you evacuate, you know, you've got suddenly you got 10,000 buses busing every citizen away from a town that had a nuclear power plant next to it. It would not take a genius for, to figure out. So there's going to be American spies nearby, satellite photos noticing a stream of buses hauling everyone away from the nuclear power plant. At that point, the secret is out. So he's not keeping the people there out of cruelty. He's doing it because they, it's come from the top. This has to be kept secret above all else. Yeah. That's because, again, the, the war, the potential war with the Americans is all that matters. That That's our apocalypse. So us, you know, whatever they could discover from this plant going bad, or it may weaken us, or they may decide this is a good time to attack. Like, they must not know, so therefore we can't do the big thing that's going to alert everybody. That means keeping the people here. And that's where the argument breaks out, because Stellan Skarsgård's character is like, well, but but we're in it. Mm -hmm. Like, you and I are here. And he's like, yeah, and we'll be dead in five years. Like, you don't understand. And again, he didn't know that. Like, he didn't he maybe if he knew he didn't know it the way we all know we're going to die but until a doctor says you've got 6 6 months you don't know it because again they're just standing there he feels fine the air is clear everything's you know we're just working we're just talking it's like no 
your body is being assaulted right now right. by the monster. That is the nature of the monster. Exactly. And they do finally start evacuating people now that the news is abuzz with talk of this disaster. Um, there's a great sense of the disoriented feeling that the displaced have, and it's not until later still that the Russian news air reports of it, which really ultimately say nothing. <laughs> it's a very funny little uh, scene of the Russian news report. And I don't know for how many years after the incident, the average like American knew more from their news than the average Russian knew from theirs, because again, they just didn't. Exactly. They didn't. Yeah. Ulana arrives uh, and is arrested, which she gets brought to Lagasov and Sherbina, where she warns them that they only have two days instead of the month that they thought they had between the sand and boron heated enough to cause a problem of a, t of a two to four megaton thermoreactive explosion, which they then have to inform the council of, including Gorbachev. And they say that this explosion would destroy the other three reactors there as well and eject their radioactive materials, killing all of Kiev, parts of Minsk and affecting all of Soviet Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, as well as Belarus, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and most of East Germany, with a nearly permanent disruption of the food and water supply, steep increase in cancer and birth defect rate, many deaths, 100 years of inhabitability of Belarus and Ukraine, which means 60 million refugees, and truly, you just feel the immense weight of the task before them that they cannot let this happen they cannot let this come to pass despite the emphasis on secrecy and the emphasis on on sweeping things under the rug that this cannot have a lid kept on it it's already out there and it is affecting the entire continent and this if you're just writing a fictionalized script this would be your ticking clock Exactly. This is the, the Death Star coming in range of the, the rebel base planet. This is an aliens, them finding out that that reactor core is going to blow up if they don't evacuate soon. It's now you've got a clock on it that's much faster than what they thought. And the clock is basically the apocalypse. Like that would have collapsed the worldwide economy. That it, The world would look totally different today if that had been allowed to happen. Yeah. And it's a ghost town when things are, are starting to move. Uh, world interrupted. There are glasses left, bedpans dirty, clothes on the hangar still. And Legasov is asking for volunteers to pump the water out, which they know this level of contamination is going to kill the three men needed to do it. All victories come at a cost, Gorbachev says. And these these men are understandably reticent, despite the promise of a reward, because it's a paltry reward in the first place. But... Sherbina appeals to the thousand years of sacrifice in their veins, and three men do make their peace with what must be done. Anenko, Bezpalov, and Baranov. Big ups, great scene of terror. They avoided ambient light, played with the sound design as the light goes out with the meters crackling up an overwhelming storm before the credits of episode two, which, like I said, do still have the crackling over the, the credits. It's so powerful, so impactful, so terrifying. And that's the dark hallway I alluded to earlier, where it's a dark hallway flooded with water, dripping water. There's pipes everywhere. It is a perfect horror setting. And they are heading into the unknown. Again, what they're doing, no human in the history of the species has ever done. That's why at the time, because there's a shocking reveal at the very end of the series, that actually those three guys, they all survived. Two of them are still alive and working in the <laughs> nuclear industry. The third guy died of like a heart attack. But they, at the time, didn't think they would live long enough to turn off the valve. 
because they had to head right into it. Well, it turned out the water protected them from the radiation because they had to basically submerge to, to get to it. They did not know that at the time. They 100% thought they were not only going in there to their deaths, but to horrible deaths to basically be have their entire flesh burned off their bones. Right. And so episode three, open wide, oh, earth. It goes right into it. They hand crank the lights to get them working again. They continue their efforts and they do emerge victorious. And so we jump now to April 30th. It's four days after the explosion at hospital number six in Moscow. Ludmilla bribes her way in to see her husband. Her scenes are kind of interspersed throughout to sort of uh, ground the human element and, and the human impact of the, of the story. But I have to admit that I find it kind of amusing, uh, like in these scenes where the nurse is like, don't touch him in any way. And of course, she immediately gives him a big hug. And again, it's a human reaction. It's understandable that she sees her husband in, in rough shape or whatever. She wants to go hug him. And it's been days since she's seen him. She had to travel to Moscow for it. But just the immediacy of like, well, if I really wasn't supposed to touch him, then they wouldn't have let me in. Like, that's the feeling that you get. And, and so they say, well, I can kind of dismiss this, this, uh, this rule. And, and it's to their detriment. Or also, I'll risk it. Right. I'll risk it. It's fine. It's, I'm going to take that risk for myself. Yeah. They've successfully contained the fire now on May 2nd, but the situation in the core is rapidly deteriorating. They need all the liquid nitrogen in the Soviet Union to set up a heat exchange, which is funny. Uh, funny little moment there. Heat exchange, which is a, basically you have to build a giant facility under the power plant and has to be dug out in a massive chamber dug out on an emergency basis so they can put a heat exchanger because it's not like a little device. It's a big, well, they, um, they describe the, the dimensions of the space they would have to excavate. But the, the scale of what they have to do to contain this is mind boggling. Absolutely. Uh, Legasov sends Ulana to question the men from the control room about what happened. We do see Dyatlov, who is in rough shape and not interested in talking with her because he says he's going to get the bullet anyway. And the Minister of Coal Industries, Shadov, arrives at the Tula mining camp where crew chief Andrei Glukov is in charge and not taking their shit. When they try to load the men into trucks going to a classified location, go ahead and start shooting, he says. We don't leave unless we know why. And these guys are cool, they're tough, and it's particularly interesting that they were so instrumental in this effort with the nuclear energy because part of the emphasis on nuclear power was because the coal miners had leverage over the state because the energy demands were so great and mostly came from coal. And it's also a great little because they had to convey that dynamic of Soviet culture and their government in one scene, mm -hmm. in one conversation. And it's wonderful because you have a party official tries to order him around. And he's like, no, right. I'm not. No, it's, it's really, he's like, you can shoot me. The rest of my men are going to beat you to pulp. Like, like, no, tell us what's going on. And you realize, oh, they have power because they can just stop mining the coal and have their brothers stop mining the coal. And, and then the whole world goes dark. So it's like, yeah, they, in the Soviet Union, it's on one hand, yeah, it's a totalitarian state, but the workers do have some power if they if they coordinate and yeah no it, it it's great because and he knows that they they need them more than he needs them. <laughs> absolutely and so shadow does reveal that they're going to chernobyl to help stop the poisoning of the black sea glukov does silently acquiesce but you get this hysterical moment where everybody pats shadow on the way to the truck and they make his suit filthy and they say now you look like the minister of coal 
implying that he's never touched physically touched coal before because again he did not get that position by being an expert in coal exactly <laughs> yeah they do arrive glukov is briefed by Lagasov on the job brusque but a great exchange you have six weeks to install this heat exchange by hand underneath the pad before the core melts through so they start immediately though it's rough going 50 degrees celsius down there which is 122 degrees fahrenheit and they can't have fans because it would get the radioactive dust in their lungs at the hospital, things are looking like a zombie movie. You know, you talked about uh, how he's perfect for The Last of Us, and this absolutely communicates that because people are like melting while Ilana tries to question them. The one guy says, I'm 25. You're like, cripes. They're melting, and, and it's also conveyed that the medical facility they're in is not capable of doing anything for mm. them. Like, they're just laying on a bed their whole body is one big weeping sore. Mm -hmm. They don't have technology to treat this. It's never happened before. There's this patient, this condition has never occurred before. This diagnosis does not exist in their medical textbooks. So they're trying to figure out on the fly, again, no information coming in. So it's not just the body horror and the makeup effects of that and how awful, like you can feel this person's pain, but also like this, the ramshackle surroundings. It's like they're not hooked up to space age stuff and, and gear and they've got them in a tank of fluid to treat their, like in Star Wars. It's like, no, they're just on a dirty bed. Yeah, absolutely. And and nurses are distracted and overwhelmed. So it's not like they're getting checked on all the time. Uh, Ludmilla is confessing to her husband that she's pregnant as well. And... Ulana sees this, she freaks out, she tells the nurse everyone is going to hear about their lack of protections for people until some KGB types emerge from the shadows to be very intimidating and suggest people actually will not hear, maybe. <laughs> the fire is finally out, and the miners are making incredible progress. They're finishing in an estimated four weeks instead of six. They're mining nude to combat the heat, which is a funny scene. But what I found really shocking on the podcast is that they mentioned and that this is part of the cruelty of science, is that they sent these guys in to do this grueling work. They killed about one in four of them from exposure to radiation in case the core melted through the concrete pad and hit the groundwater, but it never did, and so it was ultimately unnecessary. But the chance was unacceptable. They had to do it. Oh, it, yeah, and I don't know that they, that they necessarily conveyed that, that, their, that all of that work they did was just just in case and it wound up not happening but they but you know they absolutely had to have done it because again they were stopping in apocalypse right. it's it's hard it's hard to overstate i mean they 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 lay out the effects but it basically a good chunk of europe would become uninhabitable for a century but not just that it's the the effects it would have on because we've even seen right now like what happened to food prices when the war in ukraine stopped a lot of shipments and grain shipments from coming out it's like oh Ukraine is the breadbasket of a big chunk of that whole area there. Yeah. And so suddenly all of that soil becomes radioactive. It can't be worked. You know, all of some of the most fertile farmland on planet Earth is dead forever. And talking about the 60 million refugees, a kind of political upheaval that that, uh, that government probably collapses in the Soviet Union, probably breaks up into multiple countries. Like you can just sit down and daydream all of the ripple effects that would have occurred if that one thing had happened, if that melts down to the groundwater, hits the groundwater, instantly vaporizes it, and basically turns into a nuclear explosion, 
that you know creates a mushroom cloud and spreads radiation across the entire the entire map um yeah so it, that is the futility of what they were doing i guess they could have played that up some but they kind of like he straight up the whole point of this gruff coal miner character is that you can't like Stellan Skarsgård's like you can't lie to him <laughs> like like we're just going to tell him the situation and he asks like well, will my men be taken care of he's like i don't know yeah it's true. Yeah. Like I have no idea if they are because if they, they may they they may get nothing. Like you, it, I don't know. But it has to get and done. He, like he's like ask him like, do these masks work? He's like, nope, probably not. Yeah, if it worked, you'd be like, wearing them. <laughs> yeah, and they don't try to correct him. It's like this is a guy who we can't. It's great. It's a great example of having another character to be a foil to the two main guys because here's a guy who's just he's going to do the work. He's he has no illusions about the glory of the Soviet Union. Any of that. He just understands what has to be done. They're like, all right, you'll start tomorrow morning. He's like, no, we're starting right. now. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be in this this death trap it, for even one minute longer than than we have to be. Absolutely. And to your point about him uh, having no illusions about sort of the the greatness of the fatherland. Uh, the very first thing that we see him doing is telling a Soviet joke about uh, this apple cutter machine. So, oh yeah. Legasov goes to the Kremlin to report. He noticed, or I mean, I noticed that he's display, uh, d displaying the uh, Rapin painting of Ivan the Terrible and his son, whom he killed. Apparently, this painting has been displayed in a Moscow gallery for a hundred years, which of course leads to analyzing why it's here in the movie. And you can see that it might fit thematically with the idea of the state killing its people through deceit and bureaucracy tied to Ivan the Terrible being the one to slay his son. It's it's a great work of art. I love how it's it's not emphasized really through the through the camera, but it's these little things that that are details that are important and thematic. It's also a piece of art that even if you don't understand the history and the symbolism of it, it's in terms of making every bit of the architecture as unsettling as possible. <laughs> like having that be the the piece of art that's, you know, as opposed to something happy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sherbina provides the good news to the committee and Legasov the bad. They have to destroy the animals, raise the forests. Even the very topsoil needs to be buried under itself. There will be further deaths, perhaps tens of thousands, but they have to begin at once. And on the way out, Legasov gets the head of the KGB to release Ulana, but now he's accountable for her. And the first deaths are starting to happen, including Ludmilla's husband, before the credits roll again. Yeah, and the credits roll over the, if I'm remembering correctly, over the burial process, which involves putting these people in a coffin, putting the coffin in a metal coffin, putting that in a giant pit with, it's like a mass grave, and then filling it all with concrete. Right. And it just, it spells out, like, even the dead are dangerous because of what's again what this monster this lovecraftian being has done to them that you can't even have like any kind of a dignified funeral their bodies have to be treated as radioactive waste they have to be treated as this unholy thing that we must be protected from like that's your loved one down yeah. there and they're encased in multiple layers of metal and wood and concrete <laughs> and dirt uh, it's yeah, it's a, a haunting image, image one of many haunting images. Another thing in that episode, if you go and watch the series again or watch it for the first time, notice the use of dripping water. 
to create dread. This is something that they did wonderfully in Alien and the all the Aliens movies. Because if you have a spaceship, generally you should not have water dripping <laughs> everywhere. Like I think that's generally a sign something is malfunctioning. Sure. But when you've just got this water drip, drip, dripping, there's something that does to the human mind. It sets you in a state of unease. And like there's a scene when they're in the tent looking at their map, trying to figure out a bunch of stuff, and there's just water dripping from the tent and just dripping on his map. Mm-hmm. That is very intentional. There's something very unsettling, I guess, because it's like a mental reminder that something has gone wrong or something. Yeah, it's decay. Like everything is- it's, it's, it's getting yeah, through. Yeah, 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 because that is poison water. And he's got like a glass there that he's drinking from. The water's like dripping into it or whatever. And it's like, it's a great effect. All of that is very intentional. And that is someone who- understands all of the trappings of horror cinema down to the molecule. Because again, that is not, that's not something you put in a historical drama. (laughs) That is something you put in a horror movie where the dripping water is there to remind you that you, that you're in a state of, of unease at all times. Absolutely. Episode four for the happiness of all mankind. A soldier is attempting to evacuate a radioactive old lady, getting radioactive milk from a radioactive cow. She's 82, and she refuses to move. What do I care about safe? I've seen boys like you standing there with guns before telling us to leave. No, I'm not going to leave for something I can't see at all. Until he shoots the cow, the milk is still dripping. A great shot of her sitting there over the body, which I did laugh uh, on the podcast. He said, that was a fake cow we pushed over. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, because they will talk about anything in later episodes, but... You, the idea of what the people of Ukraine have been through. Again, they were overrun by the Nazis. They were overrun by the Soviets. You know, they have been invaded and invaded. It has been a killing field. You know, the town of Chernobyl itself, you know, that ground has been soaked in blood. It has been a conflict zone, but you've got these people who have been living there for generations and they just will not leave. Yep. So she kind of symbolizes the population as a whole, because it to this day there were people that never evacuated, and they, you know, they were fine. They were far enough away or whatever, but they just refused to go. There were farmers who, and this they have this one old woman to symbolize a culture of very obstinate people who have, like she said, you know, I have had men with guns, twenty-year-old boys with guns show up here every few decades, my whole life. My family is dead. They were killed by people like you, or they went off to some war and never came back. Then no, I'm I'm done. I'm too old to keep running. We didn't run before. We're not running now. And it's like no, finally you've run into something that you can't fight. Yeah, it, it, it's it's uh yeah. We join our main story again at Kiev, August 1986, four months after the explosion. Ludmilla is taking an apartment. Things are progressing, except that the open roof is impossible to approach. And the remote control bulldozers that they used in Afghanistan are too heavy, so they're going to have to use moon rovers, and even that won't get them all the way. And this is when we're introduced to our fresh-faced young pup of a man named Pavel, who's arrived to help with the military efforts to clear the trees, till the soil, and whatnot, though he isn't a soldier himself. And uh, the man that he reports to, Bacho, grouses that they're running out of men as he shows Pavel around. Because he's just a, a guy like there. They said, what did they say they would need? How many hundred thousand men do they say it would take to do the raising process? It was a sort of huge was, number. I think it was like 400,000. Yeah. And so it's like, he's like, oh, they've 
they've run out of people to like they've just recruiting because the guy worked in like the motor pool or something mm -hmm. and it's like he had no qualifications and never didn't know how to use a rifle didn't know how to do any of this stuff and he's like oh they're just grabbing warm bodies exactly when he and, and it's it's a great symbol of again they it's in choosing what character you follow as part of this this cleanup crew um it's this kid who's like yeah that's after they've exhausted all of the qualified people now they're down to just regular people and dragging them across the country right and he's there to do animal control most of them are pets he says which is grim on the plus side as much vodka as you can drink and a thousand rubles so truly like grasping for any silver lining there <laughs> like 27 dollars or something right. like that lana meanwhile is digging through the library go fighting lamanasovs but she needs some permission only documents she only gets one from the list though and you get these great shots of the cabbage farm being torn up. The whole cleanup process is filmed in a pretty cool, horror-y way. And Dyatlov just still won't talk about it to Ulana. He's the, the real sticking point here. But she found a clue in the table of contents of the document that she just got. And it refers to this positive void coefficient and the emergency shutdown procedure AZ-5 that you talked about earlier. And he says, you think the right question will get you to the truth. There is no truth. Ask your bosses whatever you like, and you'll get the lie. Yeah, and this scene is, again, if you were doing a haunted house movie, this is where they have the demon expert come in, or they find the old book in the attic. It's like, well, they it said that they tried to summon a demon here three generations ago, and that every th three generations it would come back to try to claim a child to embody it, blah, blah, blah. Right. And they learn the rules of the monster and how the monster works and the nature of it. And it's always most of the way through you know, getting to be close to the third act of the, of the final battle with the monster. Here, it's a little bit different because the monster she's taking on is a bureaucracy. But the investigation of trying to uncover the me the mechanics of what went wrong, like we've seen the visceral horror, but usually in horror, at some point, there's an intellectual process where we start to understand, you know, an hereditary, pick your movie, where we understand mentally, like, the details of who is haunting us, why, how do we kill it, so on. Absolutely. You get this grim scene again as they hunt the dogs for real, whistling to attract them because uh, they're hungry, so they approach them uh, pretty quick, going door-to-door -door after the gunfire scares them away. Pavel is understandably shell-shocked, but Bacho tries to comfort him, saying, when you wake up tomorrow, you'll realize that this was you all along, you just didn't know, which is not really <laughs> that comforting. <laughs> oh, but it's the best comfort that grizzled old Soviet soldier can offer yep. very true to his character he's trying to say the right thing because he's t talking because this kid's never killed anything he's killing all these dogs and again the dogs are all pets so they're coming up to mm -hmm. him and he's having to shoot them in the face with his rifle that's their their job is to kill every one of them because they're radioactive and the, the, the guy tells him the story of when he first time he killed a man he's like well you think it's like you've lost your soul like you're not yourself anymore he's like but nope you wake up the next day it's just you just go on <laughs> like it's you know, and that's it. And then that's that's the way it is. And he's trying to be he's trying to be comforting about it. He's trying to make the kid feel better. But it's like <laughs> that's all he's got to offer. Yeah. It's you know, he's not going to give a big soliloquy about the nature of, of good and bad. He's, he's speaking from what he knows and he's trying to be the nicest person he can be. It's very touching, but also darkly comical again, because uh, everything he says is an existential crisis <laughs> in and of itself. The little Moon Rover bulldozer is very cute and, more importantly, working. 
It's September 1986. It is making progress. They've also got some German police robot named Joker on the way, but it does immediately die on the roof because they used the propaganda number when they told Germany about this, and so it, it, it does not work at all, which is an, another funny moment. And they do a good job of explaining the issue again. They're having to go onto the deadly rooftop right over the mouth of the monster. And they're having to push this graphite into the pit because it can't, the, the roof otherwise is too radioactive to do anything. Like all of the stuff they're going to have to do to contain the site and put like a, a big shield over it, what they're going to do years later, that can't be done with that graphite on the roof. It's just, it's just puking radiation into the sky. So any cleanup has to start with getting up there. And and when they do, he describes the amount of radiation on that roof, it's not just that a human can't survive it. Their machines can't survive it. Like they have these robotic remote control bulldozers. It fries the machines to give you an idea of how dangerous it is. And he says that rooftop right now is the most dangerous place on planet Earth, period. Yeah. Probably the most dangerous spot in all of human history outside of being at the center of the nuclear bomb explosions. Because again, it is just going to kill you instantly. No, it's going to sentence you to death instantly. And then your death will be prolonged. Right. Like that's the thing. It's, it's the worst possible thing that could happen Yeah, for to be on that rooftop. And the, the whole troubleshooting with those robots is them coming to the conclusion. We have to send men up there. Exactly. All the other ideas are deemed ineffective. So bio robots is their solution, which is of course just human beings. Pavel does, he continues to kill these dogs until he gets to a room with not just a dog, but a dog and a bunch of puppies. Bacho takes the hit here and does the deed. And of course, you can see how this is the idea of always uh, some new indignity to be forced down to. We're back in October. Men are going on the roof in 90 second shifts to throw that damn graphite over the edge. The most important 90 seconds of your life. And that is a lifetime dose. They don't get to take a break and then go back on. And according to the podcast, the speech is exactly what he said. They had footage of, uh, of of him getting these men pumped up to get out there. And and so that's he was like, that's why it's maybe not written as writerly as it might have been. <laughs> no, it is. It's perfect because yeah. it is. They I don't know how many men they it was hundreds. What, right. Because yeah. they could only work a minute and a half at a time, which effectively by the time you run out to the spot where the stuff is, you've already used up 20 of your seconds and you just scrape off a few pieces and you sprint back inside. Like it's comical. Mm -hmm. It's comical because again, they, they say like you go up there within two minutes, you're dead. Like that's how much radiation is like, okay, so the shifts will be a minute and a half. And we just, and again, like you said, it's not a minute and a half and then you rest and go back. It's a minute and a half and then you're done for the rest of your life. Like you've taken enough radiation. You can't ever take any more. So they just have to line up a massive column of guys to go up there, strap on the gear, run out, scrape off a few blocks of graphite, run back, and now you're done forever. You have to wash off the gear and, and wash the the whatever material off of you. And the way it's filmed, like the Geiger counter, it's frantic, it's fast. It is because you see it from their point of view. Like they don't know what they're going to see out there. And they're, again, around the edges of the mouth of this monster. Like you fall in there, you're going to suffer a worse fate than if, if Godzilla swallowed you. Like what's down there is worse than a monster. And you have to go up there right on the cusp of it and push 
with stupid shovels, <laughs> like shovel these cursed rocks because that's what they are. They're magically cursed stones that if you touch them, they will eat your hand off. Like what else would you think of it as? Like like it's it's this invisible dark invisible dark magic coming off of it, and you have to shovel a few of these cursed stones into the mouth of the giant beast and then run away. <laughs> it is just pure. Like again, you would not you could not think that up in like a horror movie of having to do that, but it was very real and it was something that was experienced by hundreds of men. Yeah, and true to their word, I checked. It was ninety seconds before he starts clanging that bell. But somebody gets trapped and they're out there too long. It's a great moment of drama. You know, again, the the fictional part of it, they do capture this this human drama moment where he rips his boot and he falls on the top of the roof there and gets back in after a little too long. And the guy just says, comrade soldier, you're done. Time to go. That's all they can do. Uh, yeah. That, because, again, that that is if it's. It's accurate in the sense that that is all it would take is you tripping and hooking your boot on one of these big, heavy graphite stones. And then, yeah, you're out there too long. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, you're taking a massive amounts of dough. Like, it's thousands of x-rays worth of radiation every second. Absolutely. We check back in with Ludmilla in December. She's now extremely pregnant. And if you can believe it, having trouble because of the radiation exposure. Uh, Sherbina, Ulana, and Lagasov meet up in an abandoned school to avoid prying ears and discuss the upcoming trials of Dyatlov, Fomin, and Brokhanov. Ulana is not sure they're guilty regarding the explosion, though that doesn't account for their gross negligence and recklessness. Also, Lagasov is going to Vienna, in theory, to tell the world what happened, or that's at least what Ulana is pushing him to do. And in this discussion... Lagasov reveals what a colleague of his wrote, or he reveals that a colleague of his wrote the article. And basically, there is a specific set of circumstances where the emergency procedure can cause the reactor to have a surge instead of shutting down. Ordinarily, the control rods can compensate for this, but when they're removed from the core, as they were in the safety test, they go back in with the graphite tips being the first thing, not the boron, which causes a dramatic increase in reactivity. Which now this wouldn't have caused an explosion unless the operators pushed the reactor to the edge of disaster, which I suppose is the case with the Atlov stalling. And it's, again, just raising this question of, like, is any one person culpable? Is that even possible to have it the blame fall entirely on one person? Or is this a uh, a system of failure? Is it is it uh, at every step of the way? Things went wrong and and they didn't have the correct procedures in place. That's going to be answered in the next episode, the way it's structured as this being the climax. Again, if your climax in a horror story, again, that final act is a, a chaotic, whatever, a seance or something to you're casting the magic spell to bind the beast or you're killing the alien queen or whatever. In here, they deviate from that, where the last episode is just going to be people talking about what happened and navigating this trial and this political process. That is due to them making it extremely clear what the monster is, mm -hmm. that you thought the monster was the glowing thing in the middle of, the, of that exploded reactor, but the monster that killed it, took all those lives is this invisible mechanism of lies bureaucracy power you know threats everything 
propaganda, you know, brainwashing all of the things that, that come together to make it so that this simple technical fact could not make it to the people who needed to know it for all of these dumb reasons. It, it, this is where if you were just making a pure piece of fiction, you could make the climax, whatever, some dramatic saving of the the things about to explode again. Oh no, we forgot to do something. And and the guy hits the switch and, and sacrifices himself and that's how he dies. And so the truth can get out. And here it is so much better the way they do it, where the climax is this trial and these choices that are made because the choices they have to make are not to jump on top of a grenade or to dive into the maw of the beast with, with a bomb that's going to blow up its belly, but rather to look power in the face and tell the truth, knowing it will destroy right. you. So yes, it is just a series of conversations, but the choices people are making are the choices to ruin themselves in order to get the truth out, because that's the only way it can happen. And the only way to keep it from happening again, because the system would be perfectly content to let this happen again, if it meant everybody keep gets to keep their cushy jobs. Exactly. Uh, she also does reveal what happened with Ludmilla. I don't want to just leave this thread dangling. Uh, she had the baby who lived for four hours, but saved her life by absorbing the radiation that would have killed the mother from her being with Vasily. Someone has to start telling the truth, damn it. And yeah, it ends with the last of the soldiers clearing away the rubble, and they raise a flag. They did it to serve the Soviet Union, they say. Uh, and, and it's a very powerful last image of, of the people being triumphant. Yeah, the people that did the work and got their hands dirty deserve that moment of triumph. And again, you could have ended the story there if you were telling a different story. Right. But that's that's the point, because it's like, we defeated the monster. It's like, no, you didn't. Right. The monster is still alive. We've made it back to the ship, and the queen is is latched onto the, onto the dropship, and we still have to fight her. It's like, no, there's a bigger – the monster is not that thing. We, you guys heroically sacrificed to beat it. Now the real monster has to be has to be slayed. That's right. And we get into episode five, Vichnaya Pamyat, which means eternal memory. It is a phrase often used at Russian funerals. And we do start with some signs of life. There's people swimming, taking it, talking in the neighborhood. Even Ludmilla is smiling and laughing. Dyatlov is looking well. And suddenly the date comes in and it hits you like a bolt of lightning that this is 12 hours before the explosion. <laughs> it's a great rug pull. It's all been going forward so fast that this reverse is so disorienting and you feel that juxtaposition so strongly. Because you want to, in a horror movie that had a typical happy ending, you would have this like it's the next morning. You know, we're getting back. We we're getting back to normal. We're going back to school. The you know the killer has been killed, and that's the rhythm. It feels like it feels like epilogue, and then it comes back. It's like no, that actually that that place will never look like that again. Right. Uh, this is this is the past, and we're gonna, and then now they're gonna circle back and tell you a part of the story that we've not seen up till now. The the part where this all actually happened, the things that went wrong to cause the explosion, this has been hidden from us. Right now we're like starting the to track key it. event. Yeah, now we loop back and finally we see it, and that's what brings the the drama and the action to the final episode. Is we now circle back to see the the key the key event exactly, which is Fomin talking to Diatlov about the possibility of promotion. And Brokhanov comes in saying they can't reduce the power enough for the test that they've been waiting three years to do, 
because it's the end of the month and the productivity quotas mean everyone is working overtime and the factories need the power. And they ask, are there going to be stability issues running at half power for 10 hours? But with his eye on the promotion prize, Dyatlov says there won't be any issues. I'll personally supervise the test. Really hilarious when they both leave and Fomin sneaks over to like feel out being on the other side of the desk there. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit it's a little bit cartoonish, but it's also just a great example of how he's not thinking of the bigger picture. Uh, he, you know, it, it's like yes, it's this in theory you shouldn't push the machine this hard, but you know, I've been doing this a long time. It's I'll be I'll I'll take I'll personally take responsibility for, it. and of course he's not right. he's not going <laughs> to do that. In Vienna, the head of the KGB, Comrade Charkov, compliments Leg- uh, Legasov on his statecraft. During a secret meeting in the car, his presentation at the conference convinced the West it was a result of operator error, so they say they'll give him the Hero of the Soviet Union Award and a promotion to director of the Institute after the trial. And after the trial, they can deal with making the safety updates to the other reactors, which was part of Legasov's uh, agreement to tell these lies and convince the West that uh, that they were worthy of being trusted was that these these uh, retrofits would be put into place. So this couldn't happen again. Mm-hmm. It was Yeah, they, they, they would quietly go update the RMK reactor so that it wouldn't, you know, like, okay, we, I won't, the world won't know what happened, but you have to fix this issue. And of course, it, they're, they're using this as an excuse not to do that. Right. He heads home, his hair is starting to fall out, the effects of the radiation that he was exposed to in the cleanup starting to claim him. Lana arrives to say, hey, I'm not here to scold you for capitulating in Vienna, but you have to tell the truth at the trial because members of the scientific community will be there and the state will never fix the reactors until they're forced to because that would mean admitting that they lied. And he's still really worried. He says that Volkov guy whose paper she found, he's already been fired from his job for the crime of knowing that these can explode in this way. This is a kangaroo court and they will shoot me. I already gave my life by going to an open core willingly. Isn't that enough? And she says, no, I'm sorry, but it's not. Got him. <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah, and it's true because he had already sacrificed everything. It's like, no, but the job's not done. The monster isn't dead. Mm-hmm. You've not slayed the monster. The trial begins. Fun miniature of the plant is rolled out and Sherbina begins his attack on the defendant's I got to tell you, it was really a surprise for me that suddenly this became a court movie. And if if it was just the trial for five hours, I would watch it. I love like a court movie. My Cousin Vinny, the on cinema trial of Tim Heidecker, Legally Blonde, all classics. This was a really nice sticking to finish for my personal tastes. <laughs> that wonderful model that, that somebody apparently spent a hundred hours making, but they they just barely use it. He just <laughs> vaguely gestures to different parts of it. It's like this could have been a sketch. This could have been a rough sketch on a piece of paper. It's like they had this whole model built. It's like such a great. Uh, yeah, his body's covering it have- as he's gesturing to it. <laughs> but it is compelling. Stellan is great here um, until he starts to cough, clearly struggling from the radiation exposure. But he says this is the fourth time they tried this test, failing every time. Proving the documents that got them the the accolades for Chernobyl were a lie. Next up is Ulana, who describes the human link in the chain of disaster, branching out from the decision to continue with the test, starting with the shift change. 
Now, one of the crucial operators, Toptonov, is extremely young, four months on the job, and they're not the ones who are meant to do it, so they have no idea what the various crossouts and notation and the instructions means. And the other guy tells Dyatlov that they know what they're doing when Toptonov is about to speak up. He's like, oh, I'm going to say something about not knowing what the hell I'm doing here. And uh, and Aki says, Akimov says, oh, no, we know what we're doing. This is fine. We'll, we'll handle it. Yeah. And here, this this trial, if I were teaching classes in business or project management, this trial scene, or at least even if not this movie, the, this trial scene does a great job of laying it out. But what happened to Chernobyl required a bunch of things to go wrong. Where if even one of them hadn't happened, it would have been fine. Everything about the staffing, about the timing, about just you know the, the way they had to leave the reactor at half power for a little too long. It took all of these little things coming together, but that stuff does happen. And plane crashes happen this way because people always want to know, well, was it pilot error? Was it a malfunction? It's always a cascading string of things. It's... It's a, a flap that didn't flap, but the warning light that's supposed to tell you that didn't come on. The pilot didn't, there was no light to alert the pilot. The pilot technically should have done this, but his training, he, he because the light wasn't on, he didn't do the right thing. Like, it's always a chain of things that go wrong. That's why you can rarely blame one person for anything bad that happens. Right. And this trial lays it out very, very well. Again, if you were trying to just write a straight horror movie, you would have one villain whose irresponsible behavior and arrogance caused it. And the truth is, he's going to begrudgingly say, Jared Harris's character during his testimony, that yes, this guy is a massive dick. Right. But <laughs> he didn't know he was the final link in a chain of a bunch of things that went wrong, dating all the way back to that report on the flaw in the design of the reactor that at, if there was a power outage, it's backup generators, there was a delay, and da-da-da-da-da. Like, all of these things, back to the drawing board stage of that reactor design that were flawed. And so it is great because it, you would love in Hollywood to have the one villain, the one bad guy you can pin it all on. And here you have the bad guy sitting in the courtroom saying, I know you want me to be the villain. Go ahead. Like, I know you're going to you're going to just declare it to be all my fault and put a bullet in my head and call it done, which is what a Hollywood screenplay would also do. That guy would just be the the Darth Vader or whatever. And once we punish this guy, we fix the problem. But what comes out of that trial is that as much as you would love that to be true, it's just not. Absolutely. Legasov does, he gives his testimony, the science link of the chain. And as he gets to tell like, oh, it, it's, it's also, this is how the RBMK uh, core could explode. The court tries to interrupt him and, and Sherbina intercedes. So Legasov says the Atlov did all this believing that there was a failsafe, but in the circumstances he created, there wasn't. And the judge falls for this hook, line, and sinker. He asks why the rods are built with graphite tips, and he says, because it's cheaper, and the crowd stirs. Rabble, 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 rabble. <laughs> and this speech is, he did not get to say this right. in public too though his his testimony got out when he killed himself and he he recorded it, those tapes but this where he got to stand up to this is where they did 
make it Hollywood a little bit, where he did get to say it right to these people's faces. In real life, he did not get to do that. Right. He wasn't at the trial, but they said, this is the character that we care about. It ultimately does get out. And so, yeah, like you said, for gussying it up for Hollywood, and it does work. I think it is. It's compelling. It's it's great, great movie making. So I don't begrudge it at all. It's great adaptation is what it is, is because it's, it's giving it the climax that isn't necessarily there in the real events, but where he gets to lay out exactly what went wrong, which is what the, because this is so highly technical, your audience needs that. Right. And he lays it out, like, explain it to me like I'm five years old. And he just goes point by point here. Here's how it works. Here's how it's supposed to work. Here's the flaw. Here's what happened. Here's where they lied. Here's what this guy thought was going to happen. Here's the mistakes he made, but he made that mistake because he thought this. And it's laid out very you, – you need this scene, and then to make it as dramatic as possible, they have him deliver it to his superiors and to the people that, again, can ruin his career for saying it. Right. And he admits that they lied, pressured by those above them, and that 16 more with the same flaw are running. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth, which sooner or later is paid, and that is how an RBMK reactor explodes powerful stuff he's taken into custody by the kgb they say it would be embarrassing to kill him but they will not accept his testimony and he won't be a scientist anymore they'll ruin him but he does defend his two pals he says they didn't know that he was going to do this so one more moment of heroism there for him we zoom out to the sound of valerie lagasov's recorded memoirs saying that the final gift of chernobyl was that the truth is always there doesn't care about ideologies and governments it will lie in wait for all time where I once would fear the cost of truth, I now ask, what is the cost of lies? It's a great sort of capper to this, a great button as we then go into the somber text descriptions of what happens to everybody, including the retrofitting of the reactors to prevent this from happening again, which is realistically the only happy ending, uh, except that they say Ludmilla was able to have a kid despite doctors saying she couldn't. So they did cover it up uh in 2017 they finally finished the confinement of chernobyl designed to last 100 years costing nearly 2 billion dollars 2 billion dollars to build a gigantic it's it's almost comical go look it up on youtube the sarcophagus they call it that they had to slide over the entire facility it's it's almost like you know in the simpsons movie where they put that dome over the whole town yeah. it's like that scale of a project uh, and it, but it's the only it was the only way. But in they when they have the text on screen to explain, and they have like photos of the real people and explain when they passed away. But it's and this is where and it's in that text they reveal that of those three divers that went into the heart of the the monster that they all lived to be a ripe old age. And that's true. That was happy too. But well, but it, it's it is one final time that it conveys the weird wanton randomness. Mm. Of the monster, because like all the people who gathered on that bridge to just watch the fire, they all died. It's like a dozen people because it shows them and like the ash fell on them. Like those people all died horribly. But other people that were working in the plant, like the main bad guy was alive for years later. You can go find interviews with him from years after the the trial and and all of that, where he's still complaining about being blamed for it. And he may still be alive now. I'm not sure. But some of the people who were in the movie are still alive today. Two of those divers still alive, still working in nuclear power plants. And it's so selective and weirdly random 
about some people continued to live in that town or around the town for dec- you know all, all the decades after. They've been fine. Other people, you know, innocents and children who were nearby got radiation poisoned and died horribly. And then the thing that the credits point out that we don't know that because the Soviet Union did not have any kind of records or any records that were kept or definitely any records that were allowed to be shown about the cancer rates in the area due to all of the fallout, not just in the Soviet Union, but everywhere where the radiation went. Remember, they detected it in Sweden. Like the Soviet Union did not exist on an island. It, it you know, and wind blew the stuff around the globe. Right. They were detecting this probably in the United States. So they will never know how many people Chernobyl killed. The official death count is comically low. It was like 32 people or some crazy number. That's right. The The estimates range from 4,000 to 93,000 deaths. The, offici- uh, the official Soviet death toll unchanged since 1987 is 31. Yeah, 31. Yeah, which – and we'll never, we'll never, never, ever, ever know right. uh, how many people are actually killed or how many people their deaths were just marked in the death certificate as something else or whatever. But and that's that's the final. Again, I, I don't want to call it darkly comical, but but it, the the final that it's so nonsensical how the creature attacked and how its powers worked. Yeah, because it's weird. It's almost like it picked. It would pick and choose. And how many of those nurses we saw in that hospital lived for decades, or how many of them probably died, or how many of them got cancer five years later, like you know, like the our protagonist where they died, but not you know, yeah, they were suffering years later. It, it's very, it's so strange, it's so mysterious how it works. Nothing about it makes sense. The way that it can pass, the radiation can pass through walls that you can't see it. Everything about it is so is so weird. It's all conveyed so well. Yeah. Uh, if you want to creep yourself out, I cannot. I know that the premise of this is like, what's my all-time favorite horror movie? I'm not saying this is my all-time favorite. If you want a piece of horror cinema that has everything that a great piece of cosmic sci-fi horror has, I can't think of a better example. I, I, the thing, Aliens, I would put this up there with any of them. Yeah. Look, you may not be willing to say that this is the best horror movie ever made, but I will say it. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is horrific on so many levels. The idea of government bureaucracy killing the people that it's meant to protect, the fear of how much easier it is to stick your head in the sand, the great fear of it happening again, and the endless contagion nature of it, the fact that hanging out around people who have the material on them could then get you sick, and that the half-life of it is thousands of years and he's like let's just say it won't be cured in our lifetime it's so terrifying in so many ways and over and over again it comes back to the human element of it that it was a lack of respect for this force that ultimately was the cause the the hubris of humanity in handling it that that broke it down and it's handled so well. You know, five hours of this is the exact right amount of time because it would have been very easy, I think, to stretch it out into an eight and then you would have had some serious gaps where you're feeling the length and it would have been easy to say, no, this has to be a two hour movie, shove it all in there. And then you lose out on a lot of that great character development and seeing how everybody was affected. They absolutely nailed it. It is executed to perfection. The sound design we talked about is incredible. The performances are incredible. 
it's the best damn horror movie ever made. And uh, yeah, uh, if you want to say any any last thoughts on the movie, now's your chance. Uh, uh, anything that you want to say about why it's so great that you didn't get a chance to bring up before? No, I think that it is. I know there's tons to complain about it, about the streaming era. I know there's lots of things that have gotten worse. I know that especially now when you're seeing like consolidation of the streaming platforms, you're seeing the cuts at HBO to the point that you could maybe argue, well, would this have been made under the current regime or would they have made them stretch it out or would they have made them condense it down to a movie? Because as you said, if this has been on Netflix, I think it would have been, they would have made them do eight, eight episodes yeah. or 10 mm-hmm. episodes. Cause that's the, that's my, why I, do not enjoy Stranger Things. You can feel the padding, in my opinion. They have subplots that don't go anywhere. They have stuff that is stretched out because they clearly have a directive. Watch time is what we're about. We need eight hours from you, if not ten. Right. To be able to keep it to five, where, again, if it had been a movie, I do not think it hits as hard. It needs all five of its hours. So the uh, the streaming format that kind of budget that HBO gave him, and it clearly had all of the money they needed to to portray this. Um, and then that length and being able to keep it to a reasonable size for a series, but what would have been too long for a movie, it could only have happened in the streaming era. It could only have happened pre-COVID because anything, it would have been interpreted as a COVID allegory otherwise. So I think it could have only happened in 2019, um, I'm glad they made it. I am eager to see the Last of Us series. I do not think it will be as good because I don't think those games are as good <laughs> as this story. But but just the fact that you're dealing with zombie tropes, things like that, it's just not quite as as powerful as this. Yeah. There's the connection to the real world is what is what brings us home. So if you've not seen it, I think a lot of people probably avoided this because they have no interest in the subject matter don't necessarily care about historical dramas or thought that it was going to be like scaremongering about nuclear power. And that is not the point of yeah, it at all. Right. It, it is it, it, the themes are eternal, but it is, if you love horror, I don't care if you don't care about any of the subject matter in, in history, anything politics, it's not political. It is a piece of horror cinema. It's political in the same sense that the move, the aliens movies are political where the corporation made them go down there to look at these aliens for you know selfish reasons like it is it is the the backdrop that makes the horror occur but the horror that actually plays out it's very human human it's very visceral it's very tense it is scary as hell absolutely jason i want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for giving us so much of your time please tell the people where they can find you read all about your brand new book and and all the great works that you've already done before if you came into this knowing about me, it's it's probably because I it's from the book John Dies at the End that was written in 2009. That became a movie in 2012 that has become a cult favorite, and I it, it put me on the bestseller list. I owe everything to that movie, basically. So I, I now write novels full time. The John Dies at the End books are a whole series. Most people, if you've only seen the movie, did not know that, but I just wrote the fourth one. Uh, called If This Book Exists, You're in the Wrong Universe. And that title accurately conveys the tone of the books, <laughs> but they are, it's, if you like the movie, there's basically imagine that like 25 times that amount of lore and stuff happening in the books. You will hopefully enjoy them. Um, the new one just came out this previous October. If you want to keep up with me on social media, I'm Jason K. Pargin on TikTok, believe it or not. Also that on Instagram. 
but otherwise you just I'm on Twitter. You just Google just Google my name. You'll find all of the things. Jason Pargin, P-A-R-G-I-N. Hell yeah. I absolutely encourage people to check out the books, check out the movie as well, which is really great. And hey, if you like the movie adaptation of John Dies at the End, very early in the show, Chase Williamson was kind enough to come on the show to talk about The Shining. So that's a great early episode of Best Little Horror House in Philly. But more recent and more polished episodes include some comedy favorites like Betsy Sidaro, Paul Rust, Branson Reese, Lennon Parham, and other cracked alums like Alex Schmidt and Michael Swaim have come on the show to talk about some really great movies. So if you check the back catalog, you'll find all kinds of great stuff to check out. And if you are really enjoying the show, check out the Patreon where you can find bonus episodes about, like I just said, The Last of Us Part 2. I just talked about that for uh, for a while as well. And there's all kinds of great stuff about that. We've talked about things that don't necessarily fit the criteria of best horror movie ever made quite as uh, neatly. We've talked about the 10 best animated horror shorts from 1929 to 1952. Anything and everything finds its way over to the Patreon. You can check that all out there. And that's uh, I'm at Little Horror PHL on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, all the usual places. You know the drill at this point if you're a podcast listener. So so look look for me in in all the usual places. And that's it. Go read the book. If this book exists, you're in the wrong universe. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Thanks. Bye everyone. 